You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Did you die in this house? How did you die? Whatever it is, it's trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? That's Father Harris in 5A. He's blind. Blind? Well, then what does he look at? There is evil. Evil everywhere. Turn around, Allison. Look behind you. There is horror. There is darkness. I think Allison may die. But watching, waiting, warding off evil, there is hope. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Evil Santa Claus is coming to town. Join the sleaze, everybody. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been, we are coming up on our fourth year uh, of the show and of doing bonus episodes, which is really crazy. Um, So if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash Sleezoids podcast. And speaking of which, we did have uh, a few people make the jump this week. So give them their shout outs here. We have uh, Asante Amani. We have Mitch Wall. Uh, Nick Mettler, Brandon Estevez, who upgraded his uh, uh, patronage. We have Benjamin. Uh, we have Connor McGonigal, who uh, pledged at $10 a month and is going to be joining us for our uh, virtual monthly screenings that we do for the uh, $10 patrons, awesome. which is going to be a lot of fun this month because it's uh, it is the holiday season. And of course, you got to know, I don't even know if I've told Jamie this, I, I, <laughs> I am hunting down a copy of Jack Frost 2 yes. for us. Excellent. Um, a classic. So I'm I, I'm I'm hoping that that's what we end up doing. It'll it'll be officially announced. Uh, by the time you guys are listening, this it might actually already be officially announced. But I'm I'm still in the process of hunting it down, and hopefully that's what we're doing <laughs> uh, for December virtual screening with everyone. That'll be a lot of fun because we we did cover the first uh, Jack Frost, which is not <laughs> yes, the Michael thoroughly. Keaton family film, the uh, <laughs> slasher version of the same film that came out one year earlier about a guy a serial killer who turns into Frost. <laughs> the snowman um man is it dumb and uh, it's yeah it's stupid um <laughs> but it's but it's gonna be fun yeah, uh fun. we have gomez adams who signed up uh at the annual tier um if so if anyone was unaware you can't do that you can you can sign up for an entire year of the show and and save 10 percent off your your monthly subscription so thanks to gomez adams for that um wesley uh eddings lachlan saunders andy bolton mark thorne what is the milk milk? <laughs> uh, either way, he saw, also signed up for a year MLCGS. <laughs> so thank you. I don't know what that spells, but uh, thanks for signing up for the year. We really appreciate that. Yes. Um, Nicholas Birkin, Jay, Darren Tuomi. Uh, and that's everyone. 
So thanks uh, Thank you guys. to all of all of you. Hope you're all enjoying those uh, bonus episodes. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is um, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I see the stats, I know that you are. I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down to the very bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there. Uh, we've been getting actually quite a few reviews lately, nice. and they've been really helping us out. So if you haven't done it yet, please, uh, please consider doing that. It helps us climb the ranks at iTunes and find new listeners. Um... And uh, the very last plug uh, is merch. It is the holiday season. If you like Sleezoids and you want your uh, little uh, sibling to <laughs> wear a bloody knife shirt, yeah, uh, that is something that you can do. Uh, there's a really link in cool. the description. You can get posters, you can get shirts, you can get hoodies, notebooks, pillows, whatever you can think of. You can probably get the uh, poster art that local horror artist Trevor Henderson uh, did for the show. Um, so yeah, that link is in the description also at sleezoidspodcast.com. But yeah, that is the intro. It is becoming a mouthful. Um, <laughs> welcome back. I am your host as always, Josh Lewis. And joining me also as always is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back everybody. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us and we would have been kicking off, uh, December and the holiday season. Uh, how everyone does by getting really down bad and <laughs> discussing the ickiest 90s thrillers, uh, erotic thrillers specifically that we could have possibly talked about. We talked about Disclosure from 1994, a movie about uh, Demi Moore being a powerful corporate woman girl boss yes. uh, who tries to rape Michael Douglas. Um, it's you know, there's a little bit of a gender flip there. Um, it's so stupid and it pretty much doesn't work, but it was a blast to talk about. Yeah. Um, and then we, and then we paired it with, uh, Jade from 1995 directed by William Friedkin, uh, starring, uh, show regular friend of the show. I'd even go as far as say David Crusoe. Definitely friend of the show. hundred <laughs> percent. He doesn't know, he doesn't know about us, but we know about him and we were, and we, and we respect his, uh, his attempt in the nineties, uh, to break out from TV and to uh, to be a genuine movie star. It didn't quite work for him, but no. he was a lot of fun to watch in 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 Jade, which uh, has more of a procedural bent to it, but definitely gets pretty uh, nasty and gets a little uh, eye emoji. Gets a little, yeah. you know, it's a little erotic thriller. Uh, gets about, a little Epstein-esque. <laughs> gets a little Epstein-esque in there. Um, so yeah, if you haven't heard that episode, we had special guest Meg Shields on two weeks ago to talk about that. It was a lot of fun. It's on any podcast listener of choice. And then last week, we uh, we didn't we we took a bit of a left turn. You yes. know, we branched <laughs> off going super icky sleaze, and we talked about West Side Story <laughs> from 1961, the uh, obviously very famous musical directed by Robert Wise. Um, and yeah, we 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 did that one obviously in conjunction with the uh, newly released Spielberg one. Which by the time you guys are listening to this, I imagine people are already out and watching it. Um, but we really wanted to do that too because I I, I watched uh, I did a big Ferreira run early in the pandemic, Abel Ferreira. And there was a film that he did called China Girl that kind of blew my mind, which was the pairing we ended up doing with West Side Story because it was literally the exact same plot as West Side Story. <laughs> yeah. Literally <laughs> beat for beat. I mean, obviously West Side Story is also Romeo and Juliet, but like China Girl, this film literally in 1987, it takes like images right. and direct beats from West Side Story. It's literally Romeo and Juliet in like crime New York, but instead of uh, sort of like a white gang and a Puerto Rican gang, it's literally like Little Italy versus Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> and Abel Ferreira focuses a lot on the uh, the sort of inner workings of the the mob infighting and the gang violence on the streets and everything. It's kind of like a, you know, it was a little bit of a test run for some of the style he would, ex you know, 
kind of master in yeah. uh, something like King of New York. Yeah, um, he really took a focus on the on the the gang culture rather than the romance. He was much more focused on the violence and and that kind of thing. Yeah. So either way, it and was worth doing West Side it. Story just to talk about like an Abel Ferrer film that like. I talk to people about who even like Abel Frere and they haven't heard of that film. So yeah. if you haven't heard that episode, that was uh, patreon.com slash Slezoids podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. Uh, but moving on to this week, we have a very special guest joining us that I've been meaning to have on for quite a while. She is the uh, the host of a podcast I've actually guested on a couple times that um, I'm sure a lot, quite a few of our patrons will be familiar with because it gets talked about sometimes in our Discord. Uh, she is the uh, co-host of the Have You Seen This Podcast, a podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten uh, media. So there is some crossover with some of the films that we like to talk about. You know, sometimes we get big and we talk West Side Story, but sometimes we want to talk about pieces of crap that someone made in their backyard for $1,000 at like their grandma's yeah. house or something like that. It happens sometimes. Um, but the, that guest is Jennifer Albright. Jennifer, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming. We're doing great. Thanks for and coming. And hello yeah. to the audience. Yes. Yeah. This is, this has been a long time coming. I mean, we've known about each other's podcasts for like since we started them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think and, um, I, I, I think I guessed it with you guys in what, like 2019, 2018 even? Uh, yeah, there was a um, there was a point in the pandemic year when um, we wanted to talk about how the pandemic was affecting the theatrical uh, the exhibition. Mm, right. And I was like, hey, who's better qualified to talk about that than Josh? And we had a very good episode where we we talked about how the pandemic was impacting theatrical showings and um, also uh, Fox um, Fox being owned by Disney and how that was going to actually, you know, check that. I don't think I think it was pre-pandemic. Now that I think yeah, about I think it. I think I think it was. I think it was very late 2019. But yeah, we were concerned about the, the we were that's just it. We were concerned about the theatrical model for for art houses <laughs> versus multiplexes like before the pandemic happened, and all that shit has just heightened that essentially. But yeah, yeah. no, we had a really good talk about, and you know, I was kind of. I was giving a little bit of insider information I probably wasn't supposed to be giving out. But yeah, there was a lot of really <laughs> messed up shit going on behind the scenes around the time that Disney bought Fox and the way that they were, you know, overpricing and um, denying uh, independent cinemas access to playing their films mm-hmm. because they just didn't care. And um, I, I have heard a little bit of positive word on some of that, uh, at least a little bit on, on rep screenings. It sounds like Disney and Fox have... Um, you know, stopped doing what I was saying on the show was happening to us at the time, which was like, I was like, Hey, can we book point break? And they were like, what's point break. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice to hear because it feels like good news about the film industry is becoming rarer and rarer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some, some I, I've heard from some friends who are still, you know, working there that, um, you know, that it, it, it's becoming, uh, a, a little bit easier to book, um, old Fox titles than, than it was when Disney first took over and just never didn't even really have a rep arm. But I, I think that's partially because they didn't really have a rep catalog that they cared about. Fox has obviously a huge catalog. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we, we, we talked about that. And I, I also went on your show at one point to talk about uh, the Baptist minister, Estes Perkle who is a, a, not only a Baptist minister, but a magician turned exploitation filmmaker who just tried to push really, really, uh, you know, sort of radical Christian and anti-communist ideas uh, through 
uh, really nasty grindhouse stylization. Uh, and at some point we're going to cover him on our show as well, but yeah. So ha- yeah. have you seen and, this podcast? Um, I, I recommend checking it out. They talk about cool stuff. Yeah. I highly, I highly recommend that episode because one of the things that we try to get across on our show is how, um, we like to take a look back at, um, certain, mostly movies, but also TV shows and things like that and see how, it led to where we are today. And that's definitely the case with um, The Burning Hell, where if you're at all interested in how uh, the United States has gotten to the point uh, it has, um, and you want to look at uh, evangelical Christianity and how it has become more influential in the United States government, you know, stuff like The Burning Hell is a good place to start. Because that movie was insanely popular for what it was. Much like uh, another... um, millinery and christian piece uh, a thief in the night which is also wild yeah i'm gonna have to check that one out um but jennifer as it goes obviously on on our show here we have the guests bring uh the double feature with them so what two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together well uh this is an interesting one because i believe initially i wanted to do a uh kind of william peter blatty double feature but some bigwig, some really important guy <laughs> called Mr. Will Miniker decided that he wanted to talk about Exorcist 3 on the show before I could get to it. Because I wanted to do Ninth Configuration, which is one of my favorite movies, and Exorcist 3. But uh, I got pipped at the post there by Will. So, you know, yeah. I was casting about, thinking about the sort of genre trash that I usually wallow in. And I thought of a movie that I really enjoyed that I had... Um, in, uh, a few years ago at the Metrograph in, in New York City, um, The Changeling, uh, directed by Peter Medak, who also gave us The Ruling Class. Um, very good movie with George C. Scott, uh, one of the scariest horror films you'll ever see. And I was like, well, what else can I put that with? Like, what kind of pairs? And I stumbled upon on Tubi, uh, the GOAT streaming streaming service, uh, <laughs> superior to Netflix yep. in every way. Um, <laughs> Tubi had The Sentinel, uh, directed by your friend and mine, Michael Winner. Woo, and, Michael Winner. Yeah. <laughs> and as it seemed to be, uh, it seemed to be about um, people in New York living over a hellmouth. I was like, okay, well, you know, that fits. And in spite of my misgivings about it being a Michael Winner film, uh, I viewed it and the changeling. And so we have kind of the uh, the yin yang horror pairing that you have for today's episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, both both definitely, um, you know, travel a little bit in kind of, you know, sort of like that, the, the 70s paranormal psychological thriller post exorcist post the omen sentinels got a little bit more plansky uh inspiration to it whereas the changeling you know really leans into the the spooky haunted house vibes in a way that the the sentinel gets a little bit more baby the sentinel definitely has rosemary's baby written all over it uh it's actually so close that i Practically, I think I called it a copycat because um, yeah. it, it very, very clearly the popularity of Rosemary's Baby had to have been like why they said, yeah, let's let Michael Winner uh, <sighs> try it. <laughs> and yeah, and um, not as storied an address as the Dakota, but there are views overlooking Central Park. 
Yes, yes, definitely. But yeah, I'm 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 excited. I hadn't seen uh, either of these actually. Um, yeah, me neither. So I was I was very excited. And the changeling I've been holding off on a while uh, because I I kind of knew that I was gonna like it um, because <laughs> I'm just George C. Scott. I saw George C. Scott in it. I was like, okay, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's, it's probably great. I was like, the only it's a things great I've performance seen, from him. He's mm-hmm. really good in it. I like the only movies I've seen this man in are like Doctor Strange Love, Anatomy of a Murder, Exorcist 3, <laughs> Hardcore. I'm like, this dude's like he's killer. He's just breaking um, down all the time. Yeah, man getting hit by football. Yep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that's going to be the double feature today. And I think we're going to jump right into it. We're going to start chronologically, I think, here. So let's uh, kick it off with uh, The Sentinel. Burgess Meredith. Welcome home. Christina Reigns, The Sentinel, the most frightening motion picture experience of your life, and the most revealing. Turn around, look behind you, be one with us. There is evil everywhere, and The Sentinel is the only hope. The Sentinel. All right, we are talking The Sentinel, the 1977 American supernatural horror film directed by uh, Michael Winner and starring uh, Christina Raines, Chris Sarandon, and an insane lineup of (laughs) old Hollywood veterans, including... This cast uh, is stacked. It is insane. insane. It it actually is. Like, Ava Gardner's in there. Burgess Meredith is in there. Uh... Uh, even even like forgetting about the veterans as well. You even have like young Christopher Walken, young Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, with like two <laughs> lines. Yeah, yeah, does Walken even talk? I actually wrote down that he didn't. Maybe I just missed his two lines. <laughs> I, th- I, I, I think mostly, he, he gets like um, a throwaway line with the detective at okay, one point, I think. Okay, because most it's of the very time he's just Walken-y. looking good in the background. <laughs> yeah, he's like lurking in, yeah. um, and it's Christopher Walken is a, strange choice to cast for someone who is basically a detective player because anytime walk is in on walking is on screen you're you know i feel like even if you were watching this in like 1977 and you didn't were familiar with him your eyes would be going to this person (laughs) in the background saying like what what is that guy's deal like he seems like uh, the kind of seems more important (laughs) yeah because um you know, a lot of the time um, they'll do this in movies where someone will appear in a scene and you don't know what they're doing or why they're there. Maybe they're silent, but you know that they're going to figure into the plot later. And he mm-hmm. doesn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. I, I just kept seeing him and I and I kept seeing the uh, the other cop that was played by. Um, oh, what's his name? I think I've seen him in. A couple other things, but regardless, he, he he just kept going and kept doing the investigation, and I was just waiting Eli for Wallach. Walken to throw him. Oh yeah, it's in Eli there. Wallach uh, from Good, okay. the Bad, and the Ugly. Right, fucking right, right. Eli Wallach, fucking Jose <laughs> Ferrer, fucking another alumnus of Lawrence of Arabia, Arthur Kennedy playing mm-hmm. yep. an, an old ass priest. Martin Balsam from uh, Psycho and Taking of Pelham One Two Three. Yeah, Martin fucking Balsam. Crazy. Yep. John Carradine. Ava Fucking Gardner. Yeah, from the killers. <laughs> She's amazing. 
Is that, yeah, it yeah is this, this, this cast is, it, it is weird. It is just like out of, for like no reason, tiny roles that have just a couple lines are just played by like an entire who's who of a history of Hollywood cinema going back as far as John Carradine was in yes. like the Universal Monster films. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the guy John, who's playing John the Carradine, who I think was there for the birth of cinema, quite possibly. <laughs> yes. I mean, he, like was that, in, he was in movies with fucking Tyrone Power. Yeah, that, that 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 dude was in The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein, and he was in like John Ford movies. Like he was Crazy. in like the the most classic westerns. And then so. he became the the undisputed king of schlock. Like I have yeah. seen him in more bottom barrel garbage than I can even describe. Um, and he was getting kinda, that bread. Yeah, and you know, God bless him. Kind of jumping off from the. Uh, the old Hollywood luminaries, like um, you already mentioned that there uh, are also a lot of up and comers in this cast, including Christopher Walken. Um, you've also got uh, Jeff Goldblum, biographer. Yep. You yep. have got at the a very dubbed end over of the Jeff movie, Goldblum, which is really funny, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought so, because he sounds I was like, why are they looping his dialogue? Like, I know he can speak. But um, at the very end. Uh, there's a nice young couple looking for a new apartment, and it is. Uh, they are played by Tom Berenger. Amazing. <laughs> Nana Visitor, billed as Nana Tucker. This is way before Deep Space Nine. So just like a wild amount of up-and-coming actors, including uh, Chris Sarandon in, in a lead role. Yeah. Yeah, no, this the, this this cast is is really wild considering that this is a Michael Winner film, I want to reiterate. <laughs> the guy who, uh, even at this time, um, was mostly known for his Charles Bronson films. Yeah, um, and, and Michael Winner, it's w- w- worth noting, he is a bit of a hack. Um, we've talked about <laughs> him bit. mostly on this show due to his work on the first three Death Wish movies, and we do really love his third one. Oh, yeah. But I, I do think even on that episode, we kind of argued that it's kind of, it's almost accidentally great. It's like, it's a perfect cartoon version of its filthy reactionary politics that is so unhinged that it, it almost Agreed. just becomes a piece of auto critique. Um, but, but between his trashy Charles Bronson collaborations, which there were a lot of, including things like the mechanic, uh, which was made before this. And that one that he did where he had Charles Bronson playing a native man, I, I don't remember exactly what that one's called, but I remember it not being very good when I saw it on TV. Um, he did occasionally try to flex his muscles on other kinds of films, including he did a, he did a Western here or there, one called like Lawman. He did a, he did a noir. Uh, and he did take a couple stabs at, at horror with some, some, I will say mixed results because his, his issue primarily for me when I've gone to his films and I, I do like, uh, Death Wish 3 the, the most but a lot of his other ones are are very kind of like mid to kind of bad for me and mostly what I've seen across a lot of his movies is that he's just really not a very imaginative or stylish filmmaker which yeah. I think is fine for action films because sometimes for action films especially of this in the 70s you really just needed a basic even clumsy competency and like a decent script and you were kind of halfway there but it is really hard to transition that over to horror because you know, the sense of style and mood is kind of 90% of what makes a horror film scary for you. And for example, the only other horror film I'd seen to make other than this was his movie called the night comers, which I don't know if either of you have seen that, uh, no. but it's, it's really bad. And it is, um, <laughs> it is a, uh, prequel to the turn of the screw adaptation, the innocence, 
um, okay. about and and it, it, the the plot is about the two ghosts who appear in that, but like the, the, the who used to like work on the property, and it's about their kind of sadomasochistic relationship that they've developed on the property. And the issue with that film is that it, it exists solely to make everything that was ambiguous and scary <laughs> and moody about the innocence as literal and dull as possible. Um, mm. He has no sense of mood for any of it. Like I watched it at, shortly after watching The Innocence, and I was like, "This is like terrible." It's only sporadically of interest because old man Brando was in it for some reason, <laughs> and he does get to play the Irish Money. sadomasochistic freak uh, property worker. Um, so yeah. when he gets angry and violent, you know, there are a couple moments where Brando is interesting to watch. But if Brando wasn't in it, I it might have been one of the worst like seventies horror films I've seen. Um, well. I would argue in this case that uh, Michael Winner and company were visionaries because they anticipated the 2021 trick of simply rebooting old intellectual property, like doing a shitty prequel (laughs) about uh, someone no one cares about, like explicating things that don't need to be explicated and slapping it up on streaming. So, you know, good on you, Michael Winter. You were, you were onto something. You were just ahead of your time there. (laughs) Yeah. It's the seventies last night in Soho. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, Yeah. And, um, I don't, uh, I'm sorry. I I don't know if I'm uh, cutting you off talking about, uh, Michael Winter's, um, Glorious and varied filmography. But, no, I was um, just about to move on to The Sentinel. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Am I poisoning the well by bringing this up? Uh, but I think I said this on Twitter yesterday after I watched The Sentinel. I said, every Michael Winter film I've ever watched has left me feeling dirty. Even <laughs> ones that are uh, enjoyable in a sick way, like uh, Death Wish 3, which is one of the funniest movies of all time. Oh, yeah. Um, so great. Michael Winner is well known as a sleazebag, even among the crowded field of filmmaking. Yes. Um, noted scumbag, uh, treated treated people terribly, treated actresses terribly in particular. Like his misogyny just seems to ooze onto the screen with everything that he's ever made. And if you are, have you seen this listener, you, you know that we are not, we're not a show where we just cry misogyny at every negative depiction of a woman on screen. But with Michael Winter, it is really inescapable. And you can, you can verify this just by talking to actresses who've worked with him. Um, most famously, probably Marina Sirtis, um, who... Most of you will know as Counselor Troy from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, but who appeared in a few of Michael Winner's works, such as uh, Death Wish 3 and um, The Wicked Lady with Faye Dunaway, which I don't think anyone has seen. Um, no, I don't even know that. <laughs> but she, uh, like, she has stories about how grotesquely he mistreated her. And in fact, when looking into things about The Sentinel, um, Christina Raines just really didn't have anything good to say about uh, Michael Winter. I found an interview with her where she was extremely complimentary towards like most of the people that she worked with in her, she had a, I don't want to say like a short career, but you know, she did about 20 years of acting and then um, retired from that to uh, focus on her family. And um, I think she became a registered nurse. Um, And she's, she seems like a very gracious person has very nice things to say about, um, you know, 
Burgess Meredith, like, you know, Chris Sarandon, oh, he's the sweetest guy, blah, blah, blah. Michael Winter, like, just a terrible person. It's awful working with him. He was <laughs> horrible to Ava Gardner. He didn't even want to light her properly. And <laughs> it, I mean, Ava Gardner, like, why are you trying yeah. to make Ava Gardner look like shit? And it is hard to make Ava Gardner look like shit. I mean, like in Showboat, you know, where she's, uh, she's, the scenes where she's supposed to be like, you know, aged and worn and run down and she still looks like a goddess because she's Ava Gardner. And in The Sentinel, uh, you know, she looks like just old and puffy, like the Ava Gardner-ness is still coming through. But it's like, why, like, why are you doing this? And he also does it to Christina Raines because she is and I realize that she's playing a character who is, um you know, she's beset by supernatural forces and she is very ill in certain parts of the movie, but like, like he made her look like absolute dog shit. And this is a woman who's supposed to be playing a model. I don't know. Did I just kill the show just by with my Michael Winter <laughs> rant? Because it, it, it's just, there's so much there. I don't know. There's so much nastiness in, in this movie and it really just seems to ooze. Yeah, from I mean, I, I I think that Winner definitely has a nasty streak in him, and I think that there's some stuff in this that is very um, questionable. We'll get into some of like the you know some of the the details of of specifically for me some of the ways that he <laughs> he mm-hmm. uh, used, for example, like what the demons are kind of up to in this film. Um, <laughs> yeah, that I like was for just, just for like Michael, strange. for Michael Winner, um, you know what he finds creepy? Uh, lesbians, old people, and the disabled. <laughs> yeah. Literally that, demons from Exactly. Hell. That was that was what I thought was so so funny was that um you know, like like the, the sudden last minute twist it tries to pull kind of at the end, you know, where you know where it, it involves a little bit of a priest and a gate to hell and all of this. And it turns out that it really is just a bunch of old character actors and dis- literally disabled people that he found at the hospital just like walking around having birthday parties for their cats having gay sex this is like the most troubling um thing to him which i was just <laughs> definitely i was like that is, is a very strange depiction of the gates of hell considering we've talked about movies that have done things like that before like someone like lucio mm-hmm. volci um which is you know it's much more distre- distressing to watch like these you know the the makeup work that he does on some of those you know sort of zombie creatures and the the level of extreme violence he has like that gunshot to the little girl's head that just like explodes it and you know the kind of painterly <laughs> depiction of hell versus this which is just kind of a you know a, a they actually don't really show much of it it's just kind of the brownstone so i don't, I don't know it's it, it's interesting but this is in in basic premise i found this you know, definitely just trying to pick up on trends at the time. Came out in 77. Uh, it came out post-Repulsion, post-Rosemary's Baby, uh, post The Exorcist, post The Omen. And you can basically see all four of those films <laughs> in some way or another in here. Yes. Um, and also, I was uh, interested to find out that it was um, co-written by the guy who did, uh, Jamie, you might remember this, Silent Night, Bloody Night, 1972. <laughs> Which uh, we we did as one of the virtual screenings. I think we might have even done that last December when we were looking for kind of like a creepy sort of wintry yeah, I think uh, it kind was. of horror film. Um, and yeah, that movie predates Black Christmas and has like moody wide angle POV stalker sequences in it, and it has like these really extended sort of like in like sort of insane silent era looking nightmare flashbacks and stuff in it. So you can can definitely sense a little bit of that dude's haunted, spooky surrealism in the premise of this film. 
And then hmm. you just have it directed by someone like Winner, who I'm just like, is a little bit flat and surprisingly doesn't ring as much tension out of this scenario as I kind of um, hoped that he would. I All I could think about this was that this is about a house sitting on top of the gates of hell. And we have already covered the entire Gates of Hell trilogy by Lucio Fulci. And I was sitting there going, this movie and its premise are literally just begging for an Italian horror film yeah. guy from the 70s to just, you know, pump this up with, you know, with some more erotic elements, with some more unhinged surreal elements. And, you know, Winner just doesn't kind of have the dread inducing um, mood. You really do, do kind of feel that this is just a bit of a copycat of, you know, popular psychological, um, you know, uh, paranormal uh, horror films of, of of the seventies. I also um, feel yeah, like, the, yeah. um, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was just going to say the Italians do not fuck around when it comes to truly unsettling <laughs> sleazy horror. No, that's no, that's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they go all out. That that's basically what I was just about to say. It was like, uh, I, I was watching this and thinking if Fulci or someone like him directed this, I really do feel it, it would be it would be elevated regardless of kind of the the gross ideas that come along with this. You know, I guess uh, I don't know. Is it Catholic? I think. Right. They, they go to the Catholic. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So obviously there's some some gross themes that are going to pop up, such as like like we were saying, some of the horror elements are just, you know, just anti gay. Uh, um it just seems like win, winner definitely gets stuff. the most scared making this film when that woman just starts masturbating. Right, <laughs> Beverly right. D'Angelo. Yeah. Yes. And, and Another and up is, and comer. Is, like I'm watching it and obviously that, that situation would be uncomfortable. That was it's definitely awkward. Of course. But yeah. It's just that he's painting it as this like incredibly dreadful, horrifying scene. Like Allison's reacting in a very horrifying way. And, and, I couldn't help but just kind of chuckle uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, I was sitting there. Of course, I get that Allison would be uncomfortable with that situation, but it's just the way that he presents it as a little over the top. Um, and uh, he does that throughout the throughout the film. Um, there are a couple moments here that I saw that were that were cool, though. I just wish that he focused more on them. Like there there's a, a moment where well, m- maybe we should get to more of the plot first. Uh, basically, this this uh, woman, Allison, seems to have kind of like some past trauma based on her walking in on her dad having a threesome with two with ladies. With two overweight women. Yes. It's worth Rocking noting. Yes. with cake nymphs. <laughs> Which is the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> yes, yeah. And she just goes crazy about it and goes into the bathroom and starts abusing herself because of it. And so I, you know, right She doesn't away, even know how to cut her wrist properly, though. It's down the road, not across the street, you dumb <laughs> Catholic bitch. It's <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so I love that the women are also stuffing their faces with cake just to right. emphasize that they are yeah, gluttonous. Just, just cake and sex, baby. That's, that's <laughs> what completely, he was afraid of. They're completely unbothered, too. Like, you know, obviously the dad is, uh, you know, distressed and pissed off that his daughter has walked in on his cake orgy. But they're just kind of like, you know, because that's what uh, you know, that's what fat bitches are like. They're just, you know, cramming <laughs> cake into their face and like laughing. And then they also... Uh, they or um, uh, visions of them also appear at the end, you know, also emphasizing the point that um, fat profligate women are, again, like the disabled, literal demons from hell. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think he, what he was trying to do is do the whole like 
seven sins thing. So it's like, you know, gluttony, blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, is the way he presents them just comes off as very much like these, these big ladies, aren't they scary? (laughs) And you're just kind of like, like, no, man, you got to have more than that. There's got to be more thought and imagery to that. So, well, yeah, um, because for winter, like, uh, there's an eighth deadly sin, which is, uh, ugliness. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. I, I will say that that, that, that stuff yeah. when when he gets ugly, that was the time in terms of the directing that I was the most intrigued by the film. Because yes. at the very least, yes. that has a little bit of a pulse to it, even if obviously yes. we disagree with what he finds scary. Um, yeah, he is yeah. trying as a director to scare you in those moments, whereas a I, lot of the rest of the film is is like kind of a procedural, right? See it's that, kind of yeah. like yeah, a little bit. I was, yeah, I was gonna say like I wish the movie focused on the pure surreal aspects of Allison's perspective, because I just think that that one, that was the most intriguing part. And, Mm -hmm. and two, you would just settle yourself into the horror aspects more because every time it would go back to the cops or, uh, her, um, boyfriend, Michael, I was just kind of like, I I don't care. It's not the story that I'm engaged with right now. Um, I understand that you have to do a little bit of that historical, uh, research so that you can find out why the building is the way it is and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think you have to have such a hyper focus on it. And I really think those tonal changes were not a good choice. No. Um, well, and, and, and you know, what's more interesting too, is that, and part of the issue I, I had a little bit, but also part of what some of the stuff that I liked about it too, is that the supporting cast is just much more fun to watch than the lead couple is, um, which is kind yeah. of like an, kind of an issue. Like for me, I, I think that Allison, you know, and, um, um, Christina Raines, I think that they, you know, they get, they definitely are walking around the more um, horror sequences, which are obviously fun. Yeah. Um, but I found most of the stuff with Chris Sarandon to be uh, really dull, uh, mm. considering the fact that by the end of the film, it is revealed that he, you know, they, they kind of tease it out that there's like this little bit that, you know, his previous uh, wife killed herself and that he might have been the one to like kill her because she wouldn't get a divorce from him or something like that. And they kind of tease that out. Um, but you don't actually, you know, see him be kind of skeezy or particularly slimy in, in any way. It um, could have been, uh, been interesting because um, like I, I, I don't think that that. Uh, Michael Winter is really capable of doing ambiguity. Um, I believe he he, and I'm forgetting the the author's name, but he collaborated on this screenplay with the author of the book, um, The Sentinel, which I have not read. Uh, I've heard from uh, horror enthusiasts that it's actually like a pretty good book. Um, it seems from I read the the just the basic plot and it seems to be pretty similar too. So I'm I wonder if maybe just the details are are scarier in between. Well, yeah, because okay. apparently, and, well, and, and, and so, okay, so the guy who wrote Silent Night, Bloody Night is this author then too. That's interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you know the guy knows horror, right? Um, and yeah. he he was very displeased with the direction that um, that Winner took the 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 film in. They had pretty significant disagreements on on uh, the hmm. script and um and you know i i realize that most authors end up fairly discontented with what appears on the screen uh, yeah. from their work it's pretty common but uh, i'm kind of inclined to give his opinion some some weight here and um you know going back to the point i was initially making there is a certain ambiguity to uh chris sarandon's character michael uh who is a lawyer 
Christina Reigns, uh, Allison is they're they're a very nice golden New York couple. Uh, yeah, he's they, a lawyer. She's a she's a fashion model. Who, yeah, she's in, very in the opening of the film is doing very successful montages model. of her in in Central Park and on the cover of magazines and riding her bike around the city and just ha- it's a, it's almost like a travelogue montage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know they. <laughs> They have like they have a very nice life, you know. The views of Central Park, uh, everything. They're a golden couple. They're very attractive. They seem to love each other quite a bit. Um, they move they into do, an apartment in a scene that almost directly resembles the Cassavetes and Pharaoh apartment tour from uh, Rosemary's Baby, which, yes, which was a bad comparison again. to make because then it, it just doubled down on my opinion of the Chris Sarandon character being boring. Because I was like, man, Cassavetes is so filthy in that movie and when it when it is eventually revealed that he's obviously literally selling his girlfriend's body to the devil for like yes. success in the city and stuff like that stuff is really impactful and i was sitting yeah. here going man this movie needed something like that for chris sarandon that's to- absolutely what i was getting at because um, okay <laughs> there is a no you're totally correct to say that because um this could have been interesting from you know a filmmaker maybe with a a lighter touch or like a better script because um, Chris Randon is, is very likable on the surface. He is extremely concerned and solicitous about his girlfriend. Um, mm. But there could, there could plausibly be like some, you could get a sense of like ulterior motives. And those, those do come across a little bit because it's like, okay, well this guy's a lawyer, but he, Seems to be a little bit shady, but you know, he's really nice to his girlfriend, but like, oh, I don't know, maybe he killed his first wife, but oh man, he's like so concerned about Allison, like he really deeply cares about her. Um, And then at the end of the movie, it's just like, oh yeah, like I I killed my first wife and I'm damned to hell. Now I'm in hell. Come to hell with me. Right. They should have explored it a little more. Definitely. I I, I, I definitely hit that twist and I was like, man, that would have been interesting to see that like actually in the character, like the fact that he was a murderer. Yeah, because like, um, you know, uh, cover it up almost or something. Yeah. Like ever like, you know, to go back to Rosemary's baby, um, Polanski is, uh, you know, problematic fave, Um, (laughs) like a a very tremendously gifted filmmaker. Um, He plays a lot with the ambiguity of Rosemary's predicament in Rosemary's baby. Like, is she, is she insane or is she literally getting raped by the devil? That kind of thing. There's no ambiguity in the Sentinel. It's like, Oh yeah. You know, has to build over hell mouth. Like, uh, yeah, Allison's going to become the guardian of the, the hell mouth. Yeah. You know, that's pretty much where we're going. Like, no, there's no real psychological subjectivity apart from the fact that people tell her like, Oh, those people in the building don't actually live there. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. and and some of the, the you know, the, the the attempt at trying to do a Polanski s sort of surreal sequencing when she actually is, you know, with the with the whole thing with the 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 house sometimes shaking or making noises or some of the strange ghost characters that she's interacting with. That we, we don't find out until like 45 minutes in that they are supposed to be ghost characters, which is why you don't you don't quite engage with it on that level. No, I was man, you surprised know, that it took that long. You know, what's really fucked up a birthday party for a cat. <laughs> like, that's fucking scary dude like i don't know i don't know what you think but i'd be I like think, whoa like this is too much for me man and i was like no burgess meredith i always think of him as mickey from rocky i was like this is just cute this is just yeah. cute and, and i mean <laughs> yeah. introduce him to with like a sylvester and tweety bird essentially on his yes. shoulder when he when he first <laughs> uh 
uh, meets them. Named um, named named Mortimer and Jezebel. Yes, and and I also think that it's it's kind of once again it's got this thing where obviously it's an uncomfortable image in a way, but it's still more funny than horrific. And that's when she after the party she starts to have that like the vision where she's not sure if it was a dream or not. And she sees them all naked. And one of them is like hitting symbols together in Beverly front of face or whatever. Yeah. And, um, an opportunity to look at Beverly D'Angelo's admittedly very nice breasts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you didn't, uh, if you were anticipating them in national lampoons vacation, well, here's a little preview. <laughs> yeah. And then the, I think the most they, they really do when it comes to like, is she crazy or not kind of thing is when she brings in like the real estate agent to show her that like she went to a party here last night and the room is empty and there's cobwebs all over it. And yeah, it's well, just, the, the, that was when the movie kind of picked up for me a little bit oh, because yeah, I, for I, sure, d- during for sure. the early scenes, like the first half of the movie, I, mean. I was trying to figure out like what exactly was like scary about the movie. Um, and then when they said that they were all ghosts and they actually start kind of using that and then, you know, they do get some sequences where they put some makeup on them. They kind of ugly them up a little bit. There's a part where she's like, you know, literally stabbing someone and chopping someone's nose off and shit like that. Which I thought was, uh, that's one of the sequences. The corpse of her dad too. Yeah. yeah. I thought that sequence was actually well done. Um, it's one of the ones that stands out to me just because I really liked the, uh, they kind of she walks through this very dark hallway and she sees the cat like eating the the Tweety bird. Um, and then she walks <laughs> into the room and out of the darkness in a shadow that you can't see right away, the dad just starts to walk out of the shadow. And it kind of did give me a little bit of a jolt. And he's designed like he's got he's he's dead looking. So he's got, you know, pale face. Yeah, he's he's got some pale, green. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, slime or goop or something all over him. And he's He's also very tall and lanky. So, and he's in his underwear. So it just gives this kind of strange, bizarre quality to it. And him coming out of the shadows, I thought was really effective. Yeah. That that bit is what I was going to say. Like the the wide shot of her opening the door and coming through the lit door into the dark room and him being just behind the door. Yeah. Really good. Then like moving his way out. Um, Yeah. So there, you know, there, there are a couple, you know, like that was for me, when he finally started achieving the kind of ugliness that I think yes. he, he wanted to, like it, ha- it has a couple sort of late seventies kind of like gore shocks to it. Yeah. And um, it needed more that than again. That. Yeah. Well, it, it, just comparing this to other films of, of its era, um, especially coming out of Italy, I was definitely going, man, he could have upped that a little bit, but I appreciated that it was there. Um, and, and I it, do and it think was a, the knife, uh, like the slicing of his arm. And I think, she stabs him one time as well was pretty effective. Like it's, it's a good slice. Mm-hmm. The blood, you know, it's dripping down his arm and stuff. So the effects, the effects are pretty gross. Um, I just, once again, it's yeah, very few and far between. Off I the just nose. thought there, there should be a little <laughs> bit more of that. Yeah. Yeah. That too. Yep. So yeah. Thumbs up a little yeah. short in that department, but there's still enough here that I still kind of liked the, the movie overall. I mean, it kind of, it, it kind of goes back to just, Michael Winner is a director where it's like, you know, he has a workmanlike understanding of what puts across a movie to an audience like that really that comes across in in Death Wish. You you can disagree with the kind of intrinsic fascism of the original (laughs) Death Wish, but the the brutality of the filmmaking like kind of kind of sells it. Um, Yeah. But in this case, you know, he has a general idea of what's scary it's just that he's not um he doesn't finesse it and like the you know as as you mentioned there are the, all these 
you know, certain scenes that work very well in creating like a terrifying mood, you know, like her father emerging from the shadows, his corpse like shambling at her. It's like, OK, you know, that's that's fucking scary. I'll give you that. Yeah. And, 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 and reminding her of obviously walking in on him, having his orgy and trying to kill herself and take her own life. And yeah, right? like yeah. it's 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 more layered than just like, oh, look at this gross thing. But, you know, to yeah. not not to jump ahead too much, but to compare it to the following movie that we're going to talk about, The Changeling, in which every shot inside the house is laden with Mm -hmm. menace yeah there's just no comparison agreed Mm -hmm. yeah totally 100 percent agree the 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 tones and the atmosphere is just in just much 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 better in in the changeling um yeah there's there's, there's, there's no consistency to this right there's no like the like the like those moments do have a little bit of sort of like you know psychological stress or confusion or kind of weight to them in in the character experience but it's so crazy how little he does that um, like and, and, and how it really just kind of comes up, you know, I, w- I wish there was more of the ugly hysteria stuff that he occasionally gets to in this film. But there's there is a lot of that is just very flat, very procedural minded kind of like mystery element mm-hmm. that eats up so much of the film. Again, it takes 45 minutes before you even know that these are ghosts. And, and the, the, there's a little bit in the filmmaking that makes it a little off-putting. Again, you know, some of the, the strange close-ups on Michael Burgess's face as he's being a little bit too friendly. Um, you know, the, the, when, when she goes into the, the lesbian's apartment and they just start masturbating in front of her. And what do they say? What <laughs> yeah. do we do for a living? We fondle each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, despite hey, the fact the that the, the idea... Yeah, despite <laughs> yeah. the fact that the idea behind it is stupid, you can tell that Winner is trying to shoot it a little bit psychologically engaging and yeah. with how she's, like, staring at her and you know sort of the intensity of some of the score that kicks in and stuff like that well, sure. and, and a lot you of get that a little bit of her experiencing it at work too um with her like f- fainting everywhere like on the set <laughs> I, I i i did wish that there was a little bit more of the, her like the director kind of is very upset with her that it takes her 11 takes yeah. <laughs> to, oh, to, to, to yeah. put and, that um, bottle down correctly <laughs> that's right uh and uh you know little, again little side note about uh well you know i guess he was uh he was uh, pretty well known as a Broadway actor at the time. He had this is way before Law and Order. But Jerry Orbach is the angry director on the set of the wine commercial. Okay, okay. And um, you know, watching that scene, you can't. And you know, if you listen, if you listen to our show, uh, have you seen this? You know that that so, you know we try to be fair to the people who work on these movies, maybe not always assume the worst of them without evidence, but it's really hard not to watch that scene and not see Michael Winter kind of working out his frustrations about like having to work with actresses, you know, the way it's going to take 14 takes to put down the fucking bottle, right? (laughs) You know, it's like, it's, it, uh, it, it, it does make your skin crawl a little bit. Um, yeah, I, 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 and, one thing that I want to make clear, like if I finally shut my fucking trap for one minute and, you know, um, let you guys continue, I want to make at least this clear. Like if you listen to our show, like you, um, you will find that we, again, we try to be fair to the people working on movies. We try not to uh, leap to conclusions about, um, you know, mal, um, negative intent uh, on the part of filmmakers um it's become like a very easy knee-jerk thing to do hot takes about how you know everyone in hollywood is a a misogynist racist abuser and you know all the things they depict on screen are evidence of that 
Um, on Have You Seen This, we talk about a lot of movies which could be framed as problematic, but we try to engage with the quote-unquote problematic material and realize that sometimes art must depict ugliness and trauma in order to engage with these things that happen in real life. Um, oh yeah, we're, we're right there with you. Yeah, yeah. like we're, you know, we're big fi- I'm Well, I'm the big Von Trier fan. Uh, Tim has Hell qualms yeah. about Von Trier, but we both love... For example, Antichrist, uh, yeah. a movie which pissed a lot of people off. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, as part of our weekly virtual group watch that we do as friends, I just made Jamie watch Dogville <laughs> for the first Ooh. time. Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. Time. And, you know, Tim really didn't care for Dogville, but he loved the follow up uh, Manderley, which. Oh, interesting. Another movie, which, but you know, it's like, I can't, uh, I can't really say it. It seems redundant to say about Von Trier, like, oh, that movie pissed a lot of people off. It's what he does. But, um, again, we're, we try to engage with what the filmmaker is trying to put across without assuming bad intent. But in the case of Michael Winter, like I said, every movie that I've watched by him makes me feel dirty. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think there's something I imagine, I don't know, um, that Winter is probably, uh, I don't know if it'd be Catholic, but he comes from some sort of Christian background, I imagine. So when he presents things that he's frightened of the way he does in this movie, uh, as silly as they can be to me, there there still is kind of an effective thing about wit- watching him put his fears on the screen, even though I find For them sure. kind of silly. And so I think that's where I was also engaged with this film, um, regardless of the fact that I would disagree a lot with, with Winter. It, it, it like even the stuff at the end when he starts to use the um uh the deformed people as a representation of hell i definitely <laughs> i i i, I want to think that he's mostly saying it's like the the physical uh weight that that would bring would be a hell in itself but he's also unfortunately bringing forth like being disabled or uh, uh mutated in some way is evil and that is where it gets and it, obviously. It is, it, yeah. is, is kind of monstrous in, in a yeah. way, which yeah, I find I find a yeah. Yeah. definitely a troubling idea. But but yes. I, I'll agree with you in the sense that I do think that Michael Winner, the way that he shoots it, he does try to highlight in a very I guess I you could call it a mean or a cruel way, but he yes. does try to highlight the ugliness of it. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, which is maybe a problem in and of it, itself. But 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 <laughs> but the filmmaking, I will agree, has, you know, there's a little bit of life to that more so than some of the more boring elements of the film yeah yeah Um, yeah i i I almost wished he could just go full unabashed ugly just say say everything that you're you know maybe hinting at visually quietly just say it man yeah just go all out just just make a just make an estes perkle film yeah and um (laughs) i and obviously this is a really this is really dense territory to get into like everything that is implied about um you know how we as humans like perceive the disabled and the disfigured like what makes us uncomfortable and i you know i don't think that it's wrong to confront that to right. really go ahead and make the audience uncomfortable but i it's um i think in a in the hands of a more thoughtful filmmaker <laughs> you would have something which which at, is asking the audience like why does this make you feel uncomfortable like mm-hmm. why like, like why do you, these are human beings yes that's exact exactly because yeah. the um 
Yeah, Freaks is great. Mm-hmm. The the whole the whole thing about Freaks is that like yes, it's force it's forcing you to look at these people, but not merely as objects of ugliness. These are right, these exactly. are hu- these are people with with inner lives. Um, oh, instead yeah. no, of you, you're, you're, you're totally sympathetic to their feelings, especially when they yes. do oh, get yeah. to the point where they do the monstrous violence that you're, you're there to watch them do. You totally understand where it's coming from by the end you watch that film. Oh yeah. yeah. Whereas here, here you can tell it's literally just the visual shock factor. He's like, wouldn't that be gross? Right. <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. that's right. Because we're yeah. not seeing, we're not seeing a community of, of the disabled. <laughs> right. We're seeing representations of, like demonic demons, forces, I guess. not even yeah. human. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and and, I, and 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 all part of some sort of like church conspiracy thriller where the church is actually the good guys, which would also surprise me because in in most movies, even at this time, even something like The Exorcist, which I think mm-hmm. people sometimes in, in, interrogate as like a you know just a you know unquestionably with the church at every moment, it's just like you know there's a little bit more ambiguity uh, ambiguity there, especially with the way that the individual characters reckon with their own faith and you know the institution and stuff like that as well. In this, I was like the big. It's very funny. It traffics in the image that there is a creepy priest who lives in the attic who's blind and i did like the recurring image of her constantly looking up at the attic and he's just staring out there even though he can't see anything she's like what is he fucking looking at yeah i love um, stuff and i love the The, the, subtle way the twist being that they are the good guys there to stop the lesbians and disabled people was the funniest twist i didn't mind that much because we are already like in this kind of like Catholic fear sphere. So I, I, I didn't mind that it was a good versus evil thing by the end. And I did kind of like even that the, the church in order to do this has to take some person and just sit them in front of a window and guard the building for eternity blind and mm-hmm. staring off into whatever a void of some kind. Um, yeah, and, and there's a little bit about how they cool. how they try to they, they have to force people to commit suicide in order to replace the previous people who are like aging. Yeah. Um, right. Well, the, there's, the, the, there's some, the, some sort demons, of church conspiracy there. The demons are the one yeah. trying to make her commit suicide because then yeah. if she, if she takes her own life, she's going to be damned to hell forever. Right. But, um, but instead she takes the place of the priest so that she yes. can guard the gates of hell instead. And, and yeah, like going back to the, um, just really quickly to the, the uh, John Carradine, the blind priest, the actual sentinel, uh, this, it pretty much sums up like how like subtle a movie this is with a line <laughs> that Allison has where she says, uh, you know, after, um, the real estate agent has, impl- has explained that, Oh, he, he's blind, but he just sits in front of the window all day. And then Allison says something like he's blind, but then what does he look at? It's right. like, uh-huh, yeah, that it, uh, you you got it. That's that's very weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that'll come into play later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. A, a bit of a l- yeah. lack of subtlety, for sure. It's not a. Uh, it's not Wimmer's um, strong suit. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, God but I, but I, I I will say I, I got a little bit out of the climax because again I I was a little oh, yeah. bit. Um, mm-hmm. By the time the climax hit, there's stuff that's really silly about it and kind of campy about it that I just kind of sat back and went, okay, at least this is a movie. Yeah, this um, is fun. Because, because in, in some of the earlier parts, when it when it does you know move over to the cop's point of view and when it does move over to Chris Sarandon's point of view as they're literally just like... Doing really doing boring things, investigative shit. 
Well, and and doing like really unnecessary exposition too, like yeah. like parts where he's just like, okay, you go back home, and I'm gonna translate this Latin, uh, and we're gonna find out what this Latin says, and just then put it in it, a Google Translate, so that, bro. <laughs> it literally just so that they could uh, incorporate Martin Balsam and have him be the the Latin uh, professor who is just like. Right. Uh, this says something about how someone is 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 guarding and watching this place of evil. Do you know anything <laughs> about this? It's a quote from Paradise Lost, if you haven't uh, heard that quote before. Very obscure um, work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then literally the next scene is him, like, getting her the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, stuff like that, I was definitely, like, more kind of, like, rolling my eyes out a little bit where I was like, okay, this is a, in, in terms of the writing and in terms of just the, the two main characters being a little uh, generic and kind of broad and some of the actual mystery and investigative elements just being kind of not particularly interesting or tense, uh, which is, will hit, especially when we talk about the changeling, because I'd say the opposite of, is true. Oh, yeah, that it's constantly. Oh, yes. the, the, the act, the actual mystery element is even off putting and uncomfortable as yep. he's even doing something as simple as like researching something in the library. You know, mm-hmm. the, yes. the character subjectivity even dominates scenes that otherwise might be boring in that film. Yeah. Um, and it was just such an easy compare and contrast where like winner just doesn't have the sense to do that for those scenes. But I was relieved when, you know, eventually he does get to the big conspiracy about, you know, how they're trying to get Allison to kill herself so that she won't become the next uh, sentinel who right. is the, the 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 church's sort of uh, uh, person that they put uh, at this gate of hell to make sure that these demons, you know, don't actually escape the house. Because as we found out, there's no one living in this house. None of these supporting character actors actually live here. Uh, they are all just demons trying to be uh, free, uh, despite the fact that the most that they're doing is like, again, throwing Jerking birthday parties for their and, cats or yeah. having sex. <laughs> and, you know, like that, they're really not even looking like they're trying to escape, really. They're just kind of hanging out. I feel like, I feel like, Car- like Carradine is a Father Haller and the Blind Sentinel is falling down on the job a little bit if he's not letting <laughs> the church elders know, like, hey, you know, like, okay, like, I don't want you guys to freak out yet because, the you know, the gate still has its integrity. Like, you know, no, it's not broken, but it is leaking a little bit. <laughs> Might want to get it fixed, you know? Yeah. Yeah, up. call a plumber. Uh, we need to... Heavenly plumber. <laughs> yeah, leaking it's... demons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, 100%. He probably could have done a little bit better at his bodyguard job. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the dear man, he's trying. He's blind. He's Come been on. there for a while, probably. You know, he's he's tired. I get it. I mean, yeah, yeah. he's John Carradine. He's 800 years old. <laughs> but they, they they do eventually kill uh, the Chris Sarandon character. And there are a couple like, you know, uh, you know, horror images where like his blood is like dropping from the ceiling onto her dress. And mm-hmm. she comes upstairs and the lesbians aren't just having sex anymore. They're like cannibalizing his flesh. Her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and laughing, of course. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're laughing like, at every um, scene, no matter what. Yeah, like and, the, and, the and, profligate and femininity bless, uh, in this movie face? is really something. <laughs> yeah, and and God bless um, uh, Burgess Meredith, who is the only one who gets to really go off as like kind of playing a demon. Yes, where he 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 actually gets to kind of explain everything about you know what what. Um, uh, has happened as the uh, demons who are, as we mentioned, literally just disabled people that Winner found in, at at hot local hospitals. I hope they <laughs> got like a too. decent day rate. I mean, ugh. yeah, 
but yeah, so it, it, it was very funny watching, um, you know, you, uh, what is it? It's, it's Burgess being like, you are chosen by our Lord, uh, tyrant and you must destroy yourself to be one with us. It's literally just like yeah. Mickey from Rocky trying to like coax a woman into suicide. <laughs> you gotta go all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kill yourself. Yeah. That stuff I found very, very fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed that too. Really, anytime he pops up, even when he's being like the innocent, funny little old man with Tweety Bird and Sylvester, I got a kick out of it. I mean, it's not scary. He's not really uneasy or anything like that, but he's just charming. He's, and he's, he's got cute. screen presence. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, and so. again, this goes back to the the, ab, the outrageously stacked cast. It's like you have a lot of like really. They do a lot of heavy lifting for actors. This, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, working with relatively weak material and making like quite a bit out of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They're definitely chewing that, uh, that, that scenery. Um, and yeah, then, then literally, uh, Carradine and the other priest kind of come in and are basically being like, don't kill yourself, resist killing yourself. Become the guard sentinel. us against evil. Um, and, and it, yeah, if and if you guard us against evil, your doom that you are already going to be under for attempting to commit suicide earlier in your life will be forgiven, which I thought was a really dark detail. Well, it is um, strange that her trade off is either burn in hell or sit in this chair for all eternity and guard this building like both of them. seem yeah. pretty shitty. <laughs> well, yeah, that's well, kind of that, the, was, the, that the was movie ca- takes that at were... face value. The idea, the Catholic idea that obviously suicide is a sin. Right. And um, honestly, like that was pretty much like the opportunities that were available for women in the church at the time. Not not a hell of a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she she does agree that she will she will take the spot of the John Carradine. She will become the sentinel. The demons start like bleeding and screaming and kind of backing out of the room. And she gets to sit guarding uh, in the attic where the priest used to. I did like the detail that they kind of like demolish the house and replace it with a condo building. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, 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 and now Fresh. she's the recluse nun uh, next door looking out over the New York city uh, skyline, the same way that when she uh, rented out the place, they were telling him, uh, telling her about the recluse priest, a uh, blind priest who was doing the same. So, yeah. you know, they, they, they kind of thought out the, uh, you know, the, the climax and the ending well enough that, um, you know, I, I, I was able to, I think overall end up kind of enjoying myself, uh, with this one and maybe pivoting towards yeah. reductive rating round. I do think that this is kind of on the lower end of, um, threes for me. Nice. Um, I think, I, I think, um, that in terms of many of its ideas and its direction, it is, uh, silly in a bad way and then silly in a, like a fun way. Uh, and, and I, I would argue too, that it kind of looks okay. Like there's some nice New yeah, York city, like good. location backdrop to it. And some of the mm-hmm. lavish apartments and churches and brownstones that they chose. And I do like going back to movies like this from the seventies where you get all those great little zooms and <laughs> there were to winner's credit, uh, a couple uh, sequences that were not necessarily creepy, but were were effectively ugly. Even if I disagree, what was ugly about them? You know, they yeah. were they were ugly and violent and kind of weird enough that you know I got something out of it. Um, yeah. Especially um, you know the, the some of the surreal elements where she. I just wish there was more of it. That's ultimately my main um, yeah, me issue too. <laughs> is that I, I I watched this and I went, man, this premise really just does need an Italian horror filmmaker who would have went, oh, who fucking cares about the 
the boyfriend and and the cops. Yeah, let's just like uh, take take these sequences of Allison going insane because demons. Because let's reiterate what the premise is here. These demons are trying to scare her into killing herself. Yes. It's like that. That doesn't like they're. I was like, where are the scenes where the demons are like putting on little shows? That's, like they're yeah. they're doing like set dressing and like being like, you know, let's let's really scare the shit out of her and make her kill herself. You know, let's go crazy. Like I was I was just wondering like how that wasn't what the movie was about, and instead it was about this mystery that you kind of see coming. You know, forty minutes before the movie's even over. Um, yeah, and that so, yeah, is, it, that it's is, a little too flat and procedural minded for for me. Ultimately, uh, I also found the score extremely corny, uh, which is a, a weird mm. note to bring up at the last second. But I thought that all Millet. the string orchestra stuff was just signaling just the most obvious things um, in the world, and I was yeah. I was definitely like I've heard some of these exact um, you know compositions in other movies before. Well, um, this, and I remember that's not usually a note that I pick up on, and I was just weirded out by that in this. No, yeah, it definitely has that. Um, and this was a little bit of a uh, this tended to happen a lot in the '70s, where you would have like kind of a busy, obtrusive score. Like there was still a tendency to be a little bit, uh, at least in kind of more like um, you know big studio films, they were still a little bit afraid of just letting things play out on screen without kind of trying to telegraph the intent to the yeah. viewer. This uh, score is by Gil Mele, who also um, did um, soundtracks for uh, The Andromeda Strain and a personal uh, cornball favorite of mine, Starship Invasions, which is one of okay. the funniest alien invasion movies that you will ever have the pleasure to see. Um, <laughs> and he does, again, like a very busy, obtrusive score for that film, but the movie is so bonkers it kind of works. Here it just tends to drown the action. Yeah, I, def- I definitely found that as well. Yeah, yes. I would agree. Even yeah. there is one part in like where I think it's where she's being shown the house and there's some like kind of subtle I don't know if it was synths or like bells or something that I thought was okay but that's the Mm -hmm. only thing and it really was just a very subtle uh, tone setter it's nothing like the melody isn't memorable or anything like that so well and 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 I I feel like it just it it came off poorly for me because I felt like it was trying to do the work that some of the images just weren't like during the procedural elements like it was trying to be like isn't this creepy but like nothing else about the film was 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 creepy so it might not even be the score's fault it might just be that it really just didn't blend well with some of the images. And Mm -hmm. it also occurred to me too, just because we'll get to it, but in comparison with the changeling, which I thought had an incredible score. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, solid enough premise that it kind of carries, I think winners clumsy, um, filmmaking, but yeah, so low three for me. Yeah. I, I, I'd give it a, a three. Um, I, I do, I agree with everything. I, I do think that if we had somebody like Fulci behind this thing, it would, it would be elevated to something that I'd really, really love. Um, it just needed more surreal elements. It needed to take away most of, if not all of the procedural cop stuff. Uh, I think just focusing on Allison was really the move that should have been done here because any kind of horror sequence with her, although at times definitely more silly than horrifying are, are still more interesting. Um, just through through the through the images through the thoughts themselves of the scenes mm-hmm. uh i just think that they're they're much much better than anything with um with michael or or the cops so he really needed to focus on those surreal aspects of it so yeah and and i do think like the way that he presents the uh 
um, deformed people at the end, the way he's presenting them is very ugly. It's, it's not, uh, I I don't think it's the way that he should have went about it, but I get what he's trying to get across and the imagery itself is still kind of effective. It's just, it's just, it is gross. It will make you feel a little, uh, disgusted. So it it seems to be unavoidable for, for Wimmer, honestly, (laughs) just watching the Death Wish, uh, movies and then watching, watching this now. I, I I just think this is what he has on his, on his mind. So it is what it is, I guess. Um, but, but, you know, I still think that there's some cool horror elements with, like, her basically being forced to sacrifice herself w- with one way or the other. Either she becomes this nun forever that just guards the gates of hell and can't talk, is just blindly looking into the void and guarding it, or she kills herself and becomes a demon. Um, and to be honest, the way that it presents itself in this movie, it'd almost be better if she became a demon, because they get to eat cake and have sex, so... I think that uh, it seems a lot better than just the demons looking are out a window. A lot more fun. Yeah, they're winning. Yeah. I think. I think they're winning in this, <laughs> in this movie. But um, I yeah, and they're all played say, by I wonderful like, supporting character actors that you just you would rather hang out with. I think too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I and I get what he's trying to say. I do like the the like Catholic fears that are on screen here. Being a, a, a grow, growing up Catholic, it was just kind of interesting to see those fears on screen, and I, I do like seeing that, even if I disagree with it now. Um, I would just I would just way rather see this kind of struggle with um, Catholic morality and theology from William Peter Blatty or someone. Like sure. That. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. If he yeah if he was behind this or, yeah it would be it would be a lot better and a lot more well because I am honestly. not. Yeah, I am. I'm lapsed Catholic and not at all spiritual. Um, I'm an atheist, mm-hmm. and I still find a lot that's really fascinating to grapple with in Blatty's yeah. work because you know, like in Ninth Configuration or Exorcist Three or even the original Exorcist, you know, he's he's definitely struggling with the 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 questions that come along with with faith, and even as a you right. know relative outsider, that's fascinating to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, and Winter just, he, he, I don't think he's capable of just thinking <laughs> that deeply about these themes. I just, I, I don't think he, he can hold a candle to, to Blatt. So I, I, I yeah, this is no, going to be a three. He, he's like, he's like, aren't old people just like creepy looking? That's like <laughs> yeah, the, that's like the, it. the extent of it. And yeah. It's like, well, yeah, you aren't, know, aren't lesbians guess, you know? just unnatural and grotesque? Don't they creep <laughs> <Yeah>. out? <laughs> Oh man! So yeah, I'll, I'll I think it's still a three because um, I am intrigued by a couple of these thoughts here, and and I do like some of the the imagery, but um, it's definitely not Wimmer that was the guy that could elevate this material. So <laughs> uh, yeah, leave it at that. Yeah, uh, for you, Jen. Um. Well, I'll confess, I after watching this, I immediately went over to Letterbox and angrily gave it, I think, one and a half stars. Um, <laughs> I am. <laughs> I may I may go back and change that because um, I don't know I I'm, I'm gonna give it a solid if we're sorry what's your is your guys rating um, five oh, stars we, or four we, oh out of five for out of five out of five yeah. okay so you know out of five I gotta give it I'll I'll give it a two I'm I know I'm being harder on it than you guys but for me like uh you know a solid no, I, that, 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 that was why I said low three yeah I was kind of like you know this this kind of just barely got there for me because I you know just just from you know some of the intriguing stuff of the premise but yeah no totally understand and Catholic stuff <laughs> just always does it for me because of my background so that's oh yeah where, that's where but, the three comes from for me and you know this is probably it's probably indicative of like the kind of uh 
movies that I watch, which are either like, I'll, you know, I'll sit down and watch um, a stone masterpiece or utter trash. Um, <laughs> so like, sometimes like it's hard for me to place like the more middle movies. But, you know, for me to give this movie a three, I would have to have, you know, been like, you know, it doesn't work. But like, I enjoyed it. Uh, and for me, it's like it it doesn't work. I did not have a good time watching it. <laughs> like I've seen, I've seen better treatments of this kind of material where you can say like, well, you know, the, the people who made this were really earnestly trying as opposed to, you know, just being a sort of workmanlike director, like who basically grasps what you need to put into a feature, but is just going to kind of try to shit it out on film and not really explore anything like that wilder or interesting um i feel like a major a really major screw up with this film is like uh you guys were pointing out not making allison the central character um and i believe that you yeah or, can, or, or even if you're not gonna do that like at least ugly up the procedural elements like it's not like right. italian horror filmmakers don't do procedural stuff we just did bird with the crystal plumage recently, yes. which was like huge procedural yeah but it's like even even getting into the subjectivity of the boyfriend who is a killer, like mm-hmm. where is that part of the movie? Where, yeah. You know, like that's that just seems it, pretty you know? essential, especially by the end. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah. there is, uh, and you know, I know uh, not to sound like oh woke SJW takes ruining movies because like I don't really <laughs> believe that, but there is a tendency to um, you know really be negative about uh, how women are portrayed on screen. And I don't think it's a bad thing for a female character to be relatively weak or passive because there are weak and passive people that yeah, you encounter every day. Sure. But Allison should be the protagonist. She should be mm-hmm. yeah. a little more, she's, and you know, she's a, she's a modern seventies woman. She has her own career. She's uh you right. know, she's very much in love with her boyfriend, but she's like, no, you know, like I need, I want to get my own place. I don't want to get married right away. And then the, um, the, supernatural attacks that she's under just reduce her to like someone who's completely passive in her own narrative, which is a huge weakness of the film. So yeah, fuck you, Michael Winter, two stars, rest in piss. <laughs> damn. God damn. Well, I, I, I will say to your, to your point on that, it is pretty crazy that like we can see someone like Polanski, who has obviously done yeah. terrible, terrible things, and even he gives his female protagonists, I think, a little bit more to do and more right. agency in the films that they were, you know, directly stealing from. Definitely. It's beyond uh, me how like he could, like, he made Repulsion, which is absolutely a movie about a woman, you know, recycling like horrible trauma, and yeah, he's a person who inflicts that trauma. <laughs> on yeah. women and he has a better understanding of this than michael winner <laughs> it blows my goddamn yeah. mind yeah that is like genuinely crazy mm. uh but yeah i think that that will wrap it up here for the sentinel we're gonna be right back and we're gonna be talking about the changing what is it you want why you Many films will frighten you, but only a few can really terrify you. The Changeling, an experience beyond total fear. 
right, we are back, and we are talking The Changeling, the 1980 Canadian supernatural psychological horror film uh, directed by one Peter Medic and uh, starring George C. Scott, obviously, who we've talked about um, a couple times uh, on the show. I think mostly, actually, maybe just once. Have we only done The Exorcist 3? Uh, yeah, because um, we haven't done Hardcore yet. Yeah, so uh, Hardcore, I think we're going to hit uh, sometime next year. I, I really want to talk about that because his performance in that is fantastic as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, but starring George C. Scott alongside uh, Trif, uh, Trish Vandeveer. Yes, um, his wife. Who, his wife, yeah, which I thought was cool. Um, they they do have some on-screen chemistry, I was glad to see. And then a lot of actors I actually didn't um, uh, recognize um, that much. Like, I, mm-hmm. I recognized Melvin Douglas, uh, but beyond that, I was like, you know, this is kind of some, they're using some older actors here and it, it works in the film because they are generally trying to go for something. I think a little bit more classical and old fashioned, yeah. um, with this one, it's definitely picking up on similar trends, um, from the seventies cause this is 1980, but this was definitely, you know, uh, 1980 is always a fascinating year cause it was that transition period where, you know, um, movies still had a lot of seventies style to them. Um, so this definitely sort of like the Sentinel does have a lot of, you know, post exorcist post the omen, uh, kind of vibes to it. But I, I did find that this just had, especially, you know, double featuring this with the Sentinel watching it right after impeccable control of its yeah, mood. The craft is unreal. Um, yes. Just, just nonstop, really nice wide shots. It has this very quiet ambient sound design to it. Incredible use of like wide angle lenses and overhead, uh, shots inside the various spaces and rooms. It just has a really amazing sense of, of eeriness and solitude and emptiness. The majority of this movie is just like lonely shots of George C. Squat, uh, C. Scott, uh, dwarfed by his surroundings yes. or just like yeah. walking or sitting around and investigating, um, and it really works for this movie, which is, you know, him investigating sort of this this history of, um, you know, violence and this, this sort of the crimes of the past that involve a senator and involve the, the harm of children and money and power. Um, and that those things have all kind of like basically seeped themselves very naturally almost over years into this house and this house in a way starts speaking to him because he's on a very, he's on the same wavelength of the tragedy of the house, mm-hmm. um, which will, which we'll get to, but involves, you know, this sort of like, uh, this, this, this opening sequence where George C. Scott is on vacation with his kid and wife and, you know, the wind is howling and they're laughing and playing in the snow, and, but their <laughs> car has died. Ever. Yeah, and he he's he's in upstate New York, and he stops at a payphone booth to call roadside emergency. And there's just incredible close up on his face as he makes the call with a rack focus and a zoom at this car in the background, yeah. ripping down the slushy street, causing a truck to crash into their car and crush his family. Freeze frame title, and I was yeah. like, immediately, I was like, okay, that's gonna be the vibe. It's gonna have this very this very gloomy, dark, kind of feel-bad vibe to it, but also this really interesting, like, passiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, something kind of slow and classy and quiet about it that I think just made it even more uh, kind of creepy to me. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's, that, my friends, is how you do mood in a horror yes. film. Like, yeah, streaks absolutely. ahead of <laughs> The Sentinel. Um, and additionally, what puts it, 
head and shoulders above the previous movie is that it is a critique of institutions on one level. Like there are themes right. in this movie beyond just like, yes. oh man, isn't this stuff gross and weird? Yeah, and, and not only that, they interact with the character work and the emotional and the headspace of the character. Like, those two things at a certain point become kind of indistinguishable. Like, his personal pain, which the movie immediately sets into you with this mood, yes. and then obviously accompanied by this very sort of lonely kind of spare piano uh, score that it likes to do, you know, accompanying visions of, like, you know, his kid playing in these empty rooms that, yes. that used to be filled with life. Yes. And the way that he and. films it too, like he, he'll, he'll frame it in the exact way that he's seeing his child in the flashback. So when it quickly cuts to the actual flashback, it still feels like he's right there in the perspective that he is inside the room. And so it's just like this flawless yeah. editing that I really like to connect uh, the past and the, the present really good. And also, yeah, once I, I again, just to, just to get this out of the way, I love that they, they, they freeze frame on his shock and pain just to establish the movie yep. itself. Like that's the title yep. card. Un- unbelievable. Then it just goes to him like lonely walking through the, uh, is it New York City? Yeah, um, New York. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's just sad and, and painful. But yeah, continue. Well, yeah, well, and and you mentioned too, uh, which I think is a really good point, which is that you know the way that it uses the space where he sees an empty space, but then all of a sudden it has, you know, previous memories in the same shot of the kid occupying that space, and this movie becomes real. This is really important visual information, which is that you know, like these these houses and these rooms and these walls they absorb the things that they see and they mm-hmm. absorb the things that you do in them like life kind of is is still there inside of them in a way and this is such a really interesting visual way to capture that because it becomes the visual sensibility of the entire film as he has someone else who has experienced tragedy in this new house that he's moved into literally trying to communicate with him through those same, you know, sort of uh, visual approaches that we're seeing in that, in that sequence. So like that moment is not just like, Oh, he's sad. Oh, his family died. You know, it, it, it is also setting up what is going to carry through the visual sensibility of the entire film and be the drama of the film. And, um, and that idea, just smart filmmaking, that idea, which is so intrinsic to much horror, which is that, um, uh, horrible deeds, don't just dissipate when they're done. They they sink into the landscape. They infect the environment. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. One of one of my favorite examples of this is a British teleplay called "The Stone Tape," written by Nigel Neal. Have you guys seen that? No, I don't think so. No. Highly, highly, highly recommend any Nigel Neal, but I especially love "The Stone Tape," which is about um, a uh, a group of Technicians going to an, an old English house and finding that the stones themselves have recorded all kinds of malignant horror. And you want to talk about mood. It's absolutely exquisite in the stone tape. And that is also true wow. of the changeling. And it enriches the theme of the critique of, of institutions, which is that, you know, these... Horrible deeds can be hidden to a degree, but, you know, the bones still lie under the earth, the house remembers, and there are presences which will dredge up every bit 
of their power to try to communicate what has happened to them. And that creates that intensely unsettled mood that you get from the best horror movies, the sense that something is lurking and it's going to come out, you know, in spite of the best efforts of the powerful to keep it from coming out. Yeah, I love Mm -hmm. one of the first things that it does in order to communicate, which is just this like banging at at six in the morning and it just reverberates through the entire house. Um, It's just an effective way to create atmosphere for one, just because of like the echo. It kind of gives this sense of how large the location is that he's living in. And um, and 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 just that, like the 6 a.m. wake up call to it's like, I'm trying to connect with you. I'm trying to communicate. I think that was a really effective way to start the uh, I guess the ghostly happenings. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and, and worth noting, this house is a feat in production design because Mm -hmm. this house Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. It was (laughs) the interior. The interiors of this house are entirely sets uh, built in Vancouver. Um, And the exteriors are actually um, a house that they uh, basically didn't like, but they liked the property it was on. So they basically like covered it. I'm not sure if they, I I couldn't find any more detail if it was meant to be like some sort of tarp or they literally like pasted like a, uh, like a new house, like on top as like a facade or something. I couldn't figure mm. out exactly how they did it, but they said that this house doesn't exist, wow. but they, cause, because they wanted this perfect Victorian kind of era architecture. And they just literally couldn't find anywhere that, that, that had what they wanted. Um, and so the way that they, I mean, that is what I assume gives the, the camera, the freedom that it has, um, yeah. in this film, because again, this film is just filled with beautiful, like, roaming dolly and steady cam shots around the house, mm-hmm. kind of emphasizing how big and empty it is and how kind of lonely the George C. Scott character now without a family is inside. You know, he he's playing a musical composer. So a lot of scenes are him, you know, trying to write music and the music carrying through the house and you can feel it reverberating through as the camera is literally moving through it. Or you get like really beautiful, like overhead shots, like from the attic, uh, like looking down the entire staircase and looking at George C. Scott, who was like looking up at the chandelier. I was reminded of that um, shot, Jamie, we talked about from uh, Psycho, mm. where you get that overhead shot looking down the entire staircase as people are constantly coming through the front door. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also- and you can kind of see them you know, the, the layout of the house from there. So that stuff's all like really incredible. I love to, he uses it quite a few times in the movie um, uh, POVs. Like the one shot yes. I loved was uh, when George C. Scott first finds the attic uh, where he tears, he finds the the loose boards, he tears it all down, finds this doorway. And first it's just a shot yeah, and, of him. And, and, and he hammers that, um, the lock off the handle, right? I just remembered right, that because it was rhythm. one of my favorite parts. Yeah, because he, yeah. He, he's hammering it. And one of the best parts of the sound design is because the sound design is very quiet. And when it gets loud, it, it's very deliberate. And the sound design gets very loud in that moment because this, this, the house is literally echoing and talking back to him about yeah. the fact yes. that he is like using violence on it to open the door. And And that's a really emphasized moment. I also felt like because the, I guess the ghost was trying to kind of have him discover these things that when he was in rhythm with the hitting, that was kind of like them 
connecting in a little way. Yes. So he broke through the door and then he finds out what happened in the house. And that's kind of the unraveling of the mystery a little bit. So, Oh, absolutely. I yeah. That it's was it's, really it's cool not the too. only time they even, um, com- relate to each other via music. Right. One of my right, favorite elements is he, he writes that, um, that, uh, there's a great little shot of him, composing and recording that new sort of like lullaby styled piece that he's working on. And there's a couple little cool little visual background suspense images of like doors opening or the piano playing on its own that they kind of set up that, you know, something paranormal is happening. Mm -hmm. But the the part that you're talking about, which was the, you're talking about the PO, the handheld POV of him, like going up the stairs and and moving the cobwebs and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And I love that connection because you you were talking, it was like the, uh, the, the first, camera angle is him showing the it's like kind of right on the bottom stairs almost and you can see the entire staircase and him going up and then it cuts to his pov when he's in the middle of going up that and you just instantly get uh this realization of how old this location is there's cobwebs everywhere the camera's moving through cobwebs which is very cool um and then when he gets to the attic i don't know if it's the exact same angle but they present a the room in a way that's very similar to how they do later on when they actually show the boys murder and the room itself yeah um so yeah just a lot of really great ways using the camera to connect all these things um there's even moments where he uses the pov to go into the past like there's a shot that goes all the way up the stairs into the attic and then it transforms into the past where you see the boy and the father and, and all of that so yeah, just yeah. some really, really great stuff like that. No, just really intelligent, like old-fashioned yeah. directing. Mm-hmm. Really um, well done. Yeah, well thought out. With uh, with and and yeah, the the shot that you were referring to, I think, is the the stuff where it does the wide angle overhead shots because it does it of almost like every room that they go in <laughs> yeah. um, in yeah. this place where it's it's just constantly watching. I feel like it's literally meant to be like house POV or something. I'm not entirely sure. sure because like. The, like it, it is Something's a really strange but beautiful way to compose it mm-hmm. um and and it just adds to the the strangeness of moments like as I was mentioning how they the house communicates with him through music when he opens up the little boy's dusty music box and it literally plays his song back to him yeah so it's it's, it's, it's not just the echoing of sounds he's making um literally the, the the material itself the house itself is absorbing full tunes and being like you know we're, we're we're really trying to talk with you man you have been through some really incredible emotional strain that has and tragedy that has connected you with what we feel mm-hmm. so it's like literally two characters george c scott and the house on like this wavelength of basically just like a death that they yeah. both sense each other in um and it's very funny when they go to him and they're like is it possible that you're like hallucinating and the funniest aspect of this film Unlike any other haunted house movie that you've probably ever seen, this is like one of the most rational characters who's right. ever starred in a movie like this. Like he's all investigation. He's all he's never shocked or like completely scared. Yeah, you know, that's true. Even though he, he, he should be. There's a moment where he actually sees the the little boy, an apparition in the in the tub. And he doesn't have him like he's scared. He, it's clearly that he's uncomfortable, but he's, he doesn't like scream or anything. He just like that. walks back he's into just, the shadows, yeah, it's right? It's like <laughs> shocking thing that he's like, something is wrong here. But instead of me running away from it, I'm just even more intrigued and I'm going to try to crack the case, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of read that as that he already experienced the shock. Right. You know, sure. Yeah. You know, like in the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's not his reaction to this kind of stuff anymore. He knows that this is kind of like part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, um, like, as a 
you know, as an as an artist, a creative person who has experienced trauma, like, you know, he's he's sensitive to these mm-hmm. things. He's not he's not yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. He's not a sensitive old stick in the mud, which is also why he so fervently goes against the people who did this child. Um, Like he understands the wrong that has occurred here. And when he feels someone crying out in pain, like he's going to respond to it in spite of the fact that it is really terrifying, but he's Mm -hmm. going to try to, to understand and to help. Yeah. Which I guess that's, I, that would kind of lead into the, um, that like seance scene uh, yeah. where, which I, really I well you know, done. we've seen things like this obviously. Cause uh, you know, in, in haunted house horror movies, the seance is a, is a big cliche at this point, but I really like the way that it, uh, they present the communication aspect of it. Like the, the psychic is channeling the spirit and instead of just talking, um, which she does do, she's also writing constantly, but it's very gibberish. Like it's, it's hard to tell exactly what she's writing. And whenever she's not Mm. writing anything down, she's constantly just squiggling, uh, black lines as if she's like communicating with some dark void at times. And, um, I just liked the cutting. It's very fast paced. It's very, uh, uh, exciting, honestly. So yeah, the automatic writing is, is cool. Um, Mm. and, uh, I, I, I really enjoy 70s cinema and especially like 70s cinema dealing with the paranormal because um, they will always delve into these kind of like in search of topics like uh, seances and automatic writing. And I really feel like this couple in the movie, um, the the paranormal investigator couple were based. What's the name of that that couple that um, they're like real life paranormal investigators? Oh, yeah. The, like, the Warrens uh, or something Ed, like that? Ed and Lorraine yes. Warren. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yep. The one that they based all the Conjuring films on. Yes, right. exactly. Like they did the, this. But you definitely get vibes of in this. Like if we're just talking about modern films. Yeah, because I think oh, that yeah. um, that um, in the creation of this film, like the writers did a lot of research into paranormal happenings whether whether you believe them to be real or not they they really did a deep dive and i think this is based on an actual yeah apparently no it is i I actually looked that up yeah yeah it's based on the uh the writer of the story and he says i mean essentially he says that the major plot points of this story is like is what happened he said that he he, he had some disturbances he felt like something was trying to communicate with him and he even went to a certain address that had uh bones that they found and so i don't know like if this has been Whoa. a documented story but if it is real then that is kind of crazy yeah so. no s- supposedly based on the henry treat rogers mansion in denver colorado yeah yeah um where, where where supposedly a playwright lived there in the 1960s and that dude claimed that he heard disturbing noises and presences and did this seance and he was told that a little boy's spirit directed him to a part of the property where they found human remains and a gold medallion with the boy's name on it <laughs> uh, nothing happened after that because they weren't sure uh you know what to do with the investigation because the the previous owner unlike in this film which they drama they changed for the drama the previous owner of the house did not have kids mm-hmm. um, so they weren't sure if they were meant to look further generations back or what they had even found um, and that kind of comes of, into play with this too where they start to say like the cops aren't going to do anything it's a 50 year case i george c yeah. scott have to do it <laughs> yeah yeah and you know he's uh, right because uh, like 
what are the cops going to do? Like, we know how <laughs> yeah. that goes. And in fact, yeah, like, uh, um, a cop does come to the house to try to, to pressure him and scare him off the case only to get yep. his just desserts, which is, you know, which is nice. You don't, you, you don't tend to see that in real life. <laughs> Yeah, and and shortly after this film came out too, it's worth noting a kind of quasi connection to the Sentinel, uh, the house that this supposedly happened in, that the playwright lived in in real life in Colorado. Uh, shortly after this film came out, it was demolished to make room for high rise apartments, just like the end of the Sentinel. Oh wow! I thought you were going <laughs> to say that it, it burned down mysteriously, which would have been which would have been creepier, sick. Yeah. But <laughs> Even, yeah, no, it's uh, that's just uh, it's just progress every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think, and worth noting, and especially in comparison to the Sentinel, I think, I think that the procedural elements of this are actually really great. Yes, yes. That George I C. Agree. Scott is such a fun character and presence to be going on a little detective hunt with. I mean, like, again, we've covered Exorcist 3 uh, on this uh, show. We are going to be covering Hardcore at some, po- at some point. If you need some sort of Catholic grandpa from the Midwest or upstate New York who likes to, to yell. run around <laughs> and who likes to yell and go detective mode in hospitals, churches, haunted houses, porno sets. Yeah. Um, he's the guy that you call to do that. He's so great at Unbelievably it. Unbelievably good. And, and the mystery is just like effectively layered. Like the fact that he is investigating these violent crimes of power and money on, on children, literal children in, in America and how that has, um, you know, made its way into the imagery of the house where he's seeing things like the broken sort of red stained glass, uh, from the attic or we didn't talk about it, but the, uh, the actual, uh, attic itself where the sickly kid was, you know, uh, where his room was and where he was killed, like the little tiny covered in cobwebs and dust, like wheelchair in there and stuff like that, which they eventually reuse in, in parts of the film and obviously became the poster of the film because it's such a great little creepy, um, Image. May I tell then, um, May I tell a funny anecdote about the time when I saw this movie? Uh, not absolutely. involving a wheelchair, absolutely. but involving a, a staircase. Um, All right. Okay. So I saw this in. Geez, it must have been. It was like 2018. I had taken a trip to New York, and while I was there, a friend called me and said, "Hey, do you want to go see the Changeling at the Metrograph?" And I was like, "Hell yeah, I want to go see the Changeling at the Metrograph because I'd never seen it and it looked cool." And while I was in New York, I had been obliged to get an Airbnb um, in Brooklyn. And when I got to the building, um, I found that the the place that I had rented was this strange kind of basement space, which had been renovated into a place where one could live if one were obliged to it looked like uh it it looked like the kind of dwelling that like uh a respected pillar of the community would build in secret for the daughter that he secretly had like 11 children with and forced (laughs) to live down there it was a very it was a very creepy space like you know livable but it was like underground access by like in a little stair, a, a little stair, something that I'm not really used to, like coming from uh, California, the West Coast. But you know, I guess a lot of people yeah. in New York live like this because you know, real estate is a premium. You know, no windows, of course, um, like <laughs> completely subterranean. And when I got inside, I noticed that there was a mysterious staircase that led up to 
another room with a locked door. I was like, okay, well, I, um, (laughs) I assume nobody's going to come through that door while I'm here. Like maybe I'm just telling myself that to make myself feel better, but all right, whatever. So, you know, I got the invitation to go see the movie. Um, so I, you know, left the place, turned off all the lights, locked the door very carefully, um, (laughs) because this is an unfamiliar area to me and, you know, went to the, the Lower East Side to the Metrograph Saw the movie. It was great. Really enjoyed it. Came back, opened the door to my little uh, basement Airbnb, and I noticed there was a light on inside. (laughs) Oh, no. And I was like, I didn't turn that light on. I came in, and the the light at the head of this mysterious stairway was on. Now, (laughs) I did not turn this on, and I had just come to see a movie in which very foreboding stairways had figured prominently. <laughs> yeah. And so I texted my friend. And also I said, one with at the top of it, a locked door. Right. <laughs> and so I texted my friend and I was like, you know, I, I took a picture and I was like, dude, you're not going to believe like what I came across when I got back. This is freaking me out. And he texted back. Oh, uh, like, is there a wheelchair at the top? And I was like, ah! <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask, did you get chased by a wheelchair? Yeah. I, I mean, I won't say I was shitting my pants, but damn near, I was like, oh, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and oh, so man. that was, uh, that was how the changeling seemed to have followed me home from the movie theater. It was yes. a very, it was a very funny experience. In so obviously a very effective no. movie too. <laughs> oh yeah. Like it worked. I mean, yeah. you could not look at stairs the same again. Yeah, this this uh, no. this one. All of those low angle shots of the stairs are, you know, genuinely, you know, uh, imposing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and again, God bless Peter Medak and his crew because this is god tier mood making. It's so it is so creepy and oppressive that you know that that is what the best of horror gives you that experience of watching in tension and. You know, kind of a growing fear just from being in mm-hmm. a place, yeah, you know, like well, a, and, like and a grotty little uh, retrofitted basement apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, they use like these kind of very classic horror elements all the time. Like the stairs are, are used again with a uh, I, I would call it maybe a cliche at this point. I don't know if it would be back then, but like when the ball drops slowly Ooh. onto the floor yeah. and it's great at first. I'm like, OK, the, the ball gag. Here we go. You know. But but then it, it, the way that they present it, like he's just alone in the room in the study and you see it from the staircase. So you see him in the room, but we're not the camera isn't inside house literally room. trying to play with him like yeah. it's his child. And then when he take he gets so frustrated, he takes the ball and just chucks it into a river nearby the house. <laughs> and when he returns, the moment he gets into the front foyer, that thing is just bouncing again, wet from the river right on right in front of his feet and i i couldn't help but think like this is something that is kind of like a classic horror thing that i've seen before but just the way they present it the timing the atmosphere the camera angles it's just it 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 does elevate it 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 truly is like the craft that makes this this work as well Well, as it does i find 
Yeah, and and I would say not only that because you're right. The craft I think is is a huge part. I, I remember I, I I looked up what kind of reviews were like at the time, and I remember looking up that Ebert's review said something along the lines of like, if craft was the only thing that mattered in a movie, this would be like the best movie I've ever seen or something yeah. like that. Because he was kind of like he you know he had some criticisms of 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 some of it, but everyone, even people who were kind of like middling on the film, were like, this is an amazingly crafted film. Yeah, the thing that kind of blows me away is how emotionally engaged that moment leads you to be because we've already seen the little daughter. girl playing with the ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and 100%. and the way that it's developing via the story where it's telling you, that, you know, in the seance, they tell you, they tell him, this house is reaching out to you via your loss yeah. because it shares experiences with you. This is a child who is not at peace um, yeah. and, it, and it cannot rest. And so, like, that's why... So, not only that, it you know, like, the creepy things that are happening are motivated by character and emotion at the same time. A lot of the time when you see stuff like this now, even in a, you know, a... It's just a, a 2021 modern polished yes. haunted house movie. It's just... it Like, sometimes the craft and sometimes the mood is there. Um... But like a lot of time, it, it really is just unmotivated. They're like, "Well, this kind of creeps people out for some reason," you know. Well, like that's all there you is. You know what to it is? Is that? Um, and this was why uh, filmmaking got really good again in the seventies was because it was very character focused, and mm-hmm. you know, sometimes watching current movies, you feel like ah, you know, like people. Like, story is really the hardest thing to do. Like, to put together a, a coherent narrative that makes sense is very difficult. Um, but yeah. sometimes I don't even think that it's the it's the toughest thing to do in feature filmmaking. I really feel like the thing that tends to escape people is creating compelling characters whose uh, emotions and choices integrate into the narrative. And that's why a lot of, you know, and I can't even blame current horror to a degree because like this has always been a failing of many genre movies, not just horror is that they forget that to make a movie like truly memorable. You have to put emotional weight into it. You have to care about the characters. You have to understand why they do the things you do. They do. And often, uh, Characters will do inexplicable things because people do inexplicable things. And like a really good filmmaker is able to make you understand why that person is making those choices. Mm -hmm. Um, So many filmmakers fail at that. It's like they're, you know, um, and, you know, that is uh, a failing of horror as well, where the thing that people complain about is like, oh, well, you know, the characters just do stupid things because like they need to be there to get killed or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, people are irrational, and if you can put across like their their irrationality and their subjective feelings, like you end up with a much stronger film. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I do think it works like like what you were saying, Josh. Too, it's it, it works on a level that obviously on a horror level, it, it works just in the the ghostly aspects of it. But it is kind of a, a moment that it frightens him. But I think it's also a more motivation to continue investigating because he just keeps making these connections between the daughter and this, this little boy. Mm -hmm. He can't help, but feel like this might even maybe be a, a cathartic thing for him, something to release this grief by helping somebody from the past. So, and I kind of like too, that the ghost, 
the boy is just so in a, in a it implies that he's just insistent like he's like no mm-hmm. like keep paying it <laughs> keep paying attention to me like i need help and and honestly i think you need help so we can kind of do this together in a way and i like that he it, the boy you know it, it kind of rings with the uh the 6 a.m wake up call that he's constantly doing and then all these just disturbances that kind of pile on top of each other uh, as the film goes um, well, yeah, I, I like when you get to actually like hear his voice in the seance, and oh he's God, just like, so Father, scary. <laughs> Father, and the, the camera's like moving along the banister clo- slowly, and then doors are slamming, and mm-hmm. objects are shattering, and like lights are going, you know, everywhere. And you get again these really creepy both POV shots and you get these dolly shots and you get these, these, these wide angles of the uh, various spaces that they're in where you can, you know, you can see like, like when it repeats the overhead wide of the room where he saw the dusty music box and the wheelchair. But now, you know, we're getting the point of view of the father who has just literally drowned his son and the way that the The way uh, he does it. Oh my God. Well, the, the thing that I found the most impactful <laughs> yeah. was the kid, Crazy. the kid pounding his fist on the tub, creating oh, yeah. that metronome effect that he was getting when he was hammering the lock. Yes. Um, yeah. So like, like, like little connections like that, where like the style is just very confident and very like thought through in that way. And just to add to the, like the gross aspect of it, to make it so like it's, it's, he's, uh, he, he can't use his legs. He's handicapped from, I believe from the waist down, it seems. And his his dad grabs him by the legs that he can't use in order to drown him. And there's just like that yeah. that added Ugh. imagery of that's how he does it. Like he like of him holding his feet yeah, there while the like he's thrashing and then the bubbles disappear. It's yeah. somehow yeah. even grosser. It's it's uh, yeah. I, I was it was it's very effective. <laughs> yeah, here he, that was a connection I didn't pick up on until now. But this is literally both the, both of these movies also use disabled characters in different yes. ways. Yeah, they do. <laughs> the, this that's one with this one has a lot of pain and sympathy for this child. Yes, yeah, um, yeah and I guess that's where, like, um, you know, where um, the Sentinel is a is a somewhat like ugly and exploitive movie. The Changeling is a a deeply humanistic movie because this is yeah. about like this is a cry for help from not only a child but a disabled child. Like one of the mo- like in. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pay attention at all, like you'll know that the disabled like experience like a really disproportionate amount of violence and abuse in our society. And this movie is a really good crystallization of that idea, like what happens to the most vulnerable and how these things get buried, often quite literally, by people in power. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, and the the way that they twist the the kind of like connections to power by the, the reason that the father ends up killing his son is because he doesn't want his handicapped son to have the fortune that he'll get when he's like 20 or 21. So he kills yeah. him and then he ends up, and this is, I guess where the, the second half of the film comes into play. It ends up that he had another son. No, he adopted a son from an orphanage and he grew him up to become a United States Senator. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yes. and I Very just Kennedy esque. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I love that. Just like, I guess it's not ancient. It's it's only I, I guess this story, this ghost story would be like a century old where, uh, mm-hmm. when the murder took place or something like that. But I love those like these these decades of horrific violence that leads into today's power. I guess. Yes. Um, it was. Uh, 
Well, and I, and, and that, I love how mundanely cool. he finds that out because for George C. Scott, literally, he goes to the library. He goes <laughs> yeah. to the city planner's office. <laughs> he goes to all these various machine. locations and literally goes, okay, so this is just like hiding in plain sight. Like they just, right. this this dude just killed his disabled son. And no one looks into it. Want, <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't want him to be the future of his family because he's, you know, a, an asshole. Yep. And... Um, he found a, a son that he he wanted and he preferred and just said, okay, well now he's going to get the inheritance and yeah, he's I'm going to you know uh, get him uh, into politics and watching like George C. Scott like run across the the uh, the airport strip like yelling at him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I found this. Which speaking of which, we we didn't we we didn't get to the the part where they they find um, the house um, where they think that the boy might be buried. And the young girl keeps like seeing the little boy in yeah. her room under the floor, like drowning because like the house was built on top of the well that his body was tossed in. It didn't and there's an yeah. incredible the overhead shot <laughs> of him digging in the well as the flashlight is like shining up at them and everything like that. And they find the little boy's remains in there with the, you know, with the, they find the skeleton hand and everything like that. And also his christening medal as well. Yeah. And, and I just got big, the ring vibes from this scene. I yes. Um, and no, I, I like too that while he's digging, um, he doesn't see it himself, but the audience sees that the, that the hand actually rises up, like it's animated a little yes. bit. Um, yeah. so it's just another thing where it's like the ghost is trying to communicate and I just love the visual flair that that brings. Yes, same, same thing with the, uh, with the medallion. It literally right. like pushes its way out of the dirt to like, be like, here's your proof. And that's what he uses to go and interrogate right, the Senator, which right. then he thinks he, the Senator just thinks that he's being blackmailed with a scandal that right. is just made up. Um, yeah. And instead it, it turns out that, um, you know, this isn't just like, your average blackmail scheme that he's apparently run across many times. Like this is, this is something which strikes to the very core of his identity, which is why he is so profoundly shaken. Like not just his own identity, but like the integrity of his father, who he obviously, you know, admires. And he's like, how dare you come in here and tell me that my father's done this thing. It, it wrecks him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what that, that to me, was the most um, interesting element was that by the time <laughs> you're getting swept up in the mystery and in the pain of this child and you know all of this and you're you're getting, you know, you're, you're meant to be kind of getting into the child's rage a little bit mm-hmm. that he eventually expresses in the big finale that, you know, this injustice has been done and, you know, he's going to get the truth out there and he's going to do something about this. There's something so complicated about the sequence where he actually goes and tells him about all of this and he's like, look, I found this house that has a history of strange happenings. There's a manifestation, a disturbance. We found bones in the well. Your father adopted you and replaced you and named you after his actual disabled child that he killed because he preferred you. And that is why you have the things that you have. Um, None of this is yours. Uh, you're the beneficiary of the cruelest kind of murder, murder for profit yeah. Um, yeah. is, is what he says to him. And it's really pointed and he's very, you know, he's very just in this moment, but the way that he watches it break this old man where he's yeah. like, no, my father was a great man. He was a lovely man. The portrait is there on his desk and he's literally just completely shattered by this idea because once again, all he's doing is he's not getting revenge on the father. He's getting revenge on another little boy who was just from an orphanage. 
yeah. you know? Yeah, and that's um, And that's in that a, moment, he, you know, he realizes he's causing pain. Yeah. He's causing more pain, and he literally gives him all the evidence yeah. and then leaves and says, I'm, like, so sorry to do this to you. Yeah, because <laughs> And that's, like, such a complicated emotional moment. Yeah, and, you know, because, like, you know, it's kind of like how, um, I don't know why I'm drawing this connection, but it's kind of like how, like, at the end of, uh, the climax of Unforgiven, like, you're kind of waiting for this, like, um, this cathartic revenge scene, and, like, Eastwood mm. gives it to you, but he kind of, like, rams it down your throat. He's like, oh, yeah, this is what you fucking want, huh? Like, you want to you want to see, like, yeah. this violent resolution? You're like, oh, God, no, I don't want this at all. It's, like, the same thing. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, no, it, 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 it's still feel bad and ugly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it, and you get a muted version of that in um, The Changeling, which I think is, like, that's, like... Pretty, uh, you know, like morally advanced thinking where, I mean, and, you know, this guy's like a scumbag. Like he's a he's a wealthy senator. Like he's just, you know, he's he's the ruling class. He's, you know, he sucks. But, you know, at one time he was a boy and he is still a man and a human being. And to see him break and then to see George C. Scott in his performance, like kind of respond to that, because his yeah. character is truly compassionate. Like, yeah, he yeah. he can't he can't just destroy this this old man. Um, he is not. Uh, I mean, he kind of pushes him toward a kind of like psychic and eventual like actual like material death. But you know, it's just kind of like, hey man, I'm just laying it out for you. You can do what you want with this. Yeah, that's well, yeah, like uh, he was uh, battling with his almost past uh, perception of his father and their relationship. And it was like too yeah. much for him because yeah. he's almost he's yeah, like that, that, staring into the portrait and like it's shaking and he's almost having like a, it almost feels like a psychic uh, confrontation of some sort. Yeah. No, the, the, that was one of my favorite elements is because literally George C. Scott is helping this boy and this house get closure over this, this tragedy, this horrible thing that's happened. And what's so interesting is that by the time he actually is in the position to get it, to help the house, use all the evidence the house has given him and the boy has given him to stick it to this old man, it doesn't feel good to stick it to the old man because he's like, this old man was also just a little boy who had no idea what his father was doing. Right. Um, and the house is actually extremely unhappy with that development and starts trying to kill Claire in this like really cre creepy stalking sequence where it pretends to be John using his voice and then actually chases her down the stairs in a POV shot of, of the, the camera attached to the wheelchair, oh my which God. was so sick. <laughs> Unbelievably awesome. Yeah. Um, there's a great slow-mo sequence of George C. Scott walking along the second floor uh, banister as the chandelier is swinging back and oh, forth and the so house is like good. literally raging out. I love literally too, like the gusts of wind burst him onto the first floor again. Like it's just yeah. so much power. Yeah, the house great. lights itself on fire and everything <laughs> like that. And, oh, and yeah, meanwhile, the, the senator. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the senator is literally looking on his desk at this photo as it starts to rumble and he starts to realize by comparing the medallion they found from the little boy's well to the one that he owns that um, what George C. Scott had told him about what his father had done was, was true and uh, this actually transports him back. So he's literally sitting at his desk holding the photo as it as it rumbles, and then he's transported into the blazing house where he realizes the truth and horror of, of his his birth and his life. Yeah, and he climbs the stairs the, the same way that the father stairs. did. Yeah. Oh yep. man, that imagery is great. And 
Yeah. I love that. Um, I know people. I think people. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say generally people prefer like a <laughs> a happy ending and a complete resolution. Like certainly that is. Oh no, I I am noted Josh on the show. Not. I love the misery. Well, yeah. Like um, what I'm getting at is that every time we have a movie that ends happily, I'm always like, like, I would have liked it a little bit more. If everyone died. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly it. I think that um, quite frequently audiences are more sophisticated than studios will estimate, and um, studios are very afraid to kind of put out a, a downer ending, and. The ending, the resolution of the changeling like really rings true because there is like a certain amount of uh, resolution in in payback, Mm -hmm. Um, kind of what you would maybe get in like, you know, to use the phrase from Wayne's World 2 or Wayne's World, the the mega happy ending would be (laughs) like not just the finding of Joseph's bones and the medallion, it would be a complete public exposure of the Carmichael family, like the disgrace of the senator, like this entire story coming out, like this that this man is is illegitimate, that this that everyone's going to know about this scandal, like that would be the happy ending catharsis that you might want. But you know, we as uh, consumers of art, we also live in the real world, and we know again, if you pay attention at all, you know how these things usually work. Like these things <laughs> usually get buried when there is like a public reckoning. It's often anticlimactic. It's like, yes, they got Jeffrey Epstein, but oops, he's dead. Right. Um, yeah. And who knows how the Glenn Maxwell trial is going to go? Like, I don't. It's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. It's not going to end with her being like publicly executed for you know crimes <laughs> against children and right. you know public decency. Um, and I think that is an indication of the best and bravest filmmakers, the ones who are not kind of trying to mold reality to what they would like it to be, but making something which truly reflects human experience and how, you know, there are small measures of satisfaction in life, but often like quite a bit of dissatisfaction have to live with. And Mm -hmm. you know what, like in the changeling, it's like, I'm happy enough that, um, that John, the, the, the main character got to the bottom of the mystery. He let the dead speak. And he got out of the house with Claire. Okay, that's that's enough. Like the the and the house burning to the ground. It's like okay, you know, we didn't we didn't get the massive public reckoning, but this is still there's still a there's still a bit of closure for the characters yeah. and the audience. Yeah. It's no, like there's that was what I found really spirit. interesting about it. Yes. Yeah, closure for the spirit, but not quite for uh, like us as a society as a whole. <laughs> Yeah, because no. like these forces are like simply too powerful and you know that's how right. that's right. how capital operates. Like they're going to steamroll you and you know we can only mm-hmm. kind of I you know that doesn't mean like don't like it doesn't mean stop fighting. It just means like you know except that often you're just going to get like that tiny corner of satisfaction. You know like the story right. will out in some respect even if there isn't like a kind of human, you know, the, the, the justice quote unquote of the, the human world, like our, our spheres of, of law enforcement, like you're not going to get it from there. You've got to find it somewhere else. 
Well, I, I even liked that <clears throat> just in this final sequence where there is like some sense of, you know, the, that the, the boy in the house are getting some sense of closure by confronting this boy who is the changeling who took his place after something horrible happened to him. Yes. But there is something I think so, you know, the, the sheer visual rage of the house, yes. the way that it's attacking without direction, it seems, the way that it almost kills George C. Scott by dropping the chandelier on him and trying to do right. various things like that. So the, the sheer rage of the house combined with the fact that we do get a little bit of emotional complication with the old man who, you know, is very shattered by the fact that his father is a terrible person and, you know, uh, might not have done the same thing that his father did, even though he takes the place and he does offer himself up as the sacrifice for that uh, is interesting. But to have that just feel like such a bummer yeah. by the time you hit the end of this film. Um, where it's like you are very clearly watching, you know, the narrative being resolved, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel amazing. It doesn't feel like a victory. It feels like, you know, this stuff happens in the world and it sits in the walls until it gets an, a chance to lash back at the world again. And that's it. And whether it hits the, the right target or whether it, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, it, it's just looking for, you know, in the end, we are just going to be sitting in that morning shot in the remains of the charred property. Yeah. And <laughs> With the wheelchair and the music box and the little lullaby playing again and stuff like that. You know, like that's that's the image that you're left with. You're you're not left with, you know, some sort of justice. You are just left with pure destruction. Yeah. And um, that's um that is often the kind of thing which comes out of trauma is and it is why like we as a society kind of struggle with the traumatized it's like with the the <clears throat> the empathetic side of us wants to help them but often in their rage and pain they lash out like traumatized people can be very difficult to deal with like they will often mm -hmm. hurt the people around them because they hurt so profoundly and you know there's like a spectrum of hurt there are some people who because they were so deeply traumatized will act out like really malignantly and um then then there are the people on like the lower end of the spectrum who are not not like truly malicious people but you know still are not you know maybe haven't processed their trauma in such a way that they're able to not lash out at people and you know the expression right. of the house is just that that intensity of of rage and pain where it hurts the man and the woman who tried to help because you know, things appear to be slipping away to, you know, the house and Joseph, like maybe there isn't going to be like a resolution. And as such, it lashes out. It's 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 really powerful imagery. Yeah. Good yeah. Pivoting uh, towards reductive rating around here. This one gets a, a solid, maybe even a high four for me because <clears> I just yeah. I, I really did find it just. I found the style of it just very beautiful and very graceful and the control over its tone that just the way that it feels so lonely and grief stricken in both its mood and its atmosphere. Um, so many fantastic, like intelligent directorial choices, yes. you know, on, on display the the slow zooms, the shadowy corridor compositions, the creepy handheld POV tracking shots, the beautiful, uh, you know, sort of, um, wide angle overhead images of all the various locations they do, including again, 
this amazing feat of production design, which is the interior mm. of this Victorian architectured house that they that they built uh, all the uh, interiors for, um, and all of it complemented honestly just by the the kind of quiet, kind of constant uh, w- the constant wind sounds of the sound design and the mm. very the very spare piano score that you know again it, it kind of has the lullaby quality of of the characters' music, but also has this ghostly kind of twinkling to it as well. You know, all of it just really really emphasizes the feelings that both the you know George C Scott's character and the little boy is going through of you know this this emptiness and loss that they've um, experienced and I love the way that the horrifying tragedy and violent rage you know that is at the heart of this movie has just you know through the style and the narrative has literally seeped into the walls of this house and been absorbed the same way that his song is absorbed into the music box and it's been contained for so long that when it finally gets out it's you know it's it's just very it has a very feel bad sense to the revenge that's more feels more like a doomed repetition than it does any sort of like cathartic justice Um, and yeah beyond that just very effective and old fashioned piece of spooky filmmaking um so yeah for me i i really loved it yeah me too i think it's a, a solid four for me um i mean another great george c scott performance uh i, I yeah. do love all his like his his moments of of loneliness and sadness but he does of course get to have a couple outbursts that i that i love like when <laughs> uh he really starts to break down and inside the house that he's just yelling at the house like what do you want from me and in a classic george c scott fashion so i, I love that stuff and I, like to I, I actually am shocked when you told me at the beginning of this that uh, a lot of the, the house is uh, set design because, like, it looks very authentic, I found. Um, and they have a lot of really awesome uh, camera work. Like, th- they show that staircase quite a bit, and it is it is very large and well put together. And um, the yeah. way that they use it at the end when the house just starts to rumble and you see that chandelier just swinging, like, violently beside him, um, there's just really, really great set design and yeah, the connections between his loss and the, the, the violent death of, uh, Joseph, um, I think is, is, it's definitely much better and much more realized than the Sentinel is, <laughs> uh, if we're comparing, uh, the two, uh, it's just, he has, a, a real attention to detail when it comes to the, the character's traumas and, uh, kind of the cath- the catharsis that they're looking for. I think it's, uh, it's, it's just very well thought out and the craft is impeccable. I love all the, uh, the way that the camera moves. Like once again, the shot from establishing the staircase to the POV of George going up the staircase to the wide shot of the attic itself. Like he just, there's such a way of communicating those, uh, uh, the, 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 the imagery and it's just, it's great. So yeah, four out of five, I'm going to be revisiting this. This is definitely going to be like a, a Halloween go-to. Hell yeah. For you, Jen. Um, I did not run to Letterboxd to angrily rate this one. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I, of course, really enjoyed it. Uh, revisiting it, enjoyed it just as much. I would probably put it in the, oh gosh, like, you know, because of the sophistication of the themes and of the production design and the... Uh, cinematography and direction. I would even push it into maybe like four and a half star category. That's nice. probably what I'm going to give it on on Letterbox, just because the film is so so powerfully powerfully affecting as both a horror film and also as again a critique 
of uh, in, institutions and, and capital. Um, it really makes the movie a standout for me. A quick word that I want to say about uh, Peter Medak, and if I may make a recommendation to the audience, um, he, Peter Medak has had a little bit of a of a bumpy career, but he has managed to keep working. He has uh, not only he was able to recover from a significant speed bump in his career in the mid-70s with uh, an unreleased film called Ghost in the New Day, Noonday Sun, starring Peter Sellers. Um, mm. And I would like to recommend to the audience his, um, actually, like, you guys might have to cut, cause, uh, or cut my, um, my fumbling here, because I, I want to actually get the name of this uh Oh yeah, for sure. This uh, der- this documentary correctly. So um, yeah, let me let me take this over. Um, I want to recommend to the audience that they take a look at a uh, documentary directed by Peter Medak called uh, "The Ghost of Peter Sellers." This came out in 2018. You can find this on um, streaming for rent, and it is Peter Medak going back and oh yeah, it's, it's on Criterion Channel right now. Oh, too, is it? Anyone. That's oh, fuck, that's great. Apparently, and I know. I know that all of you already have the Criterion Channel. So what are you waiting for? Oh, yeah. Go watch yep. it. Um, <laughs> very, very nice documentary where Peter Medak goes back and revisits the uh, the very cursed making of Ghosts in the Noonday Sun, a movie which was a hundred percent sabotaged by its star. If you know anything about Peter Sellers, oh, damn. um a master of his craft, a truly great comedian, but uh, let's say a complicated man. And okay. I didn't know much about him. I'm, I'm a fan of just his work, but I don't know much about the man himself. Oh, I mean, there is, whew, I, I could talk for another hour or two about Peter Sellers' <laughs> private life. It's uh, it's, he was a deeply, a deeply troubled man. And um, in the case of ghosts in the noonday sun, um, they were trying to make a pirate movie on uh, a Greek island, so they already had like production difficulties. And then they had a star who suddenly decided, like, well, you know what? I don't want to do this movie, but I don't know how to kind of sack up and be a man about it and just say, you know what? Like, either I can't do this, or we're going to have to do this a different way. Like, he just straight up like torpedoed the film and. So years later, just by horribly acting and stuff. Is that basically just, like he'd ruined the set and that's just in that like way. fucking around, not showing up, yeah. like just being <laughs> like just being Completely Peter Sellers. Um, gotcha. And Peter Medak went back. He talked to everybody he could who was still alive, who had worked on it. A lot of the crew, the producers, and really grapples with this experience. This this was an appearance which appears to have hurt him. Profoundly, And I'm not talking just career-wise, although, you know, that's pretty obvious. He did recover, but emotionally, it mm. really did a number on him. And the fact that he is able, in this documentary, to look at Peter Sellers, a person who has hurt him very deeply with compassion, and to still <laughs> call him a friend that he has some positive memories of, is really remarkable. And I'm super not into documentaries in which the filmmaker is I don't want to say that he's not like the central subject but yeah, like documentaries where the filmmaker is on camera they tend to be very indulgent in my opinion this one yeah. is this one works great because Menag has such like a, a, a delicate touch and for 
anybody who is interested in movie production and kind of how agonizing making a feature can be, like I highly recommend Ghost of Peter Sellers. And if our discussion of the Changeling has intrigued you of all, like definitely take a look at that. Take a look at Peter Medak's um, other work. You know, Ruling Class is great. Um, he's done some excellent TV work. He directed a couple episodes of Hannibal. Um, oh, cool. Uh, he, he directed uh, Species 2. <laughs> Hell yeah. Definitely Hell check yeah. that out. <laughs> um, I have not had the pleasure, so I, I, I don't know if I can recommend that one. But um, he's, definitely, he's definitely a filmmaker worth engaging with. He, does, he has done very fine work. He's still with us. So while well, I said rest in piss to Michael Winter, Peter Medak, I love you. I hope you live to be 100. You're great. I love the changeling four and a half stars. Yeah. I'm going to be diving into this guy's work. He's, he's clearly a talented man. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for, uh, this week's episode. That was the Sentinel from 1977 and the changeling from 1980. Thanks so much, uh, Jen for joining us and for bringing mm. these films with you. Thank you for letting me bloviate. Um, I enjoy it. <laughs> no problem. Uh, if you've got anything to plug while you're here, this is typically where we have you do that. Yeah. Um, if you don't already know, um, the uh, finest and only odd media podcast on the Internet, not really, is Have You Seen This? Uh, I do that with my co-host, Tim. Um, you can check us out at patreon.com slash have you seen this. Um, for our most recent free episode, we did a deep dive into... Fight Club, the very good nice. David Fincher satire movie, which we both I love. have seen. That. Yes, yeah. and um, you <laughs> I've can heard of that one. You can uh, kind of test the waters by going to anywhere where you get your fine podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Overcast, wherever you listen to shit. You can check out our Fight Club episode, and we also have some really primo bonus shit if you want to take a really deep dive at our Patreon. Um, we just did an episode about Nothing But Trouble with the inimitable Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. That's one that you do not want to miss. And you can get access to that and all our other bonus episodes, some 50 bonus episodes in total for a pledge of as low as $2 a month. So go check us out, patreon.com slash have you seen this? Hell yeah. can definitely recommend uh, doing that. We are supporters of the Have You Seen This Patreon. So and we are eternally grateful for that because, like, the um, <laughs> the support of our patrons, like, really, really keeps me going, like, working on this stuff. I'm working, like, a ton of freelance jobs at once. And, you know, just the fact that people want to pay us for our ramblings on weird and stupid movies, like, it means so much to me. And thank yeah, you guys. Feel too. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for having... Me on Sleezoids because this is, as you all know, this is also a really great podcast, and um, hopefully we can all do this again Thank sometime, you. either on your show or mine. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Yeah. Will do. Oh, yeah. Sounds great. Um, for our listeners, in one week's time, we are going to be back with the big uh, Christmas episode, actually going <laughs> up Christmas Day. So if you're doing any sort of commuting that day or heading over to the families, you will have an episode uh, from us to listen to where we are going to be, one, hitting the big boy that we've been kind of avoiding for like three or four years, Die Hard. Yeah. It's time to talk about it. Everyone talks about it around that time of year. But I thought of a good enough pairing that I was like, it's the time. Yes. So we're going to be talking about one, Die Hard, obvious. And number two, a movie called Dial Code Santa Claus. 
um, which is an incredible little trash film that Vinegar Syndrome just put out on a 4K Blu-ray and is amazing. It it does the Home Alone premise before Home Alone and more genre-y and violent. It's it's practically a little like 10-year-old boy uh, doing a combination of Rambo First Blood Part (laughs) 2 and... um, Silent Night, Deadly Night. More violent like than a, a Home dude Alone. Dressed as Sam. Yeah. Yes. Holy shit. Okay. I'm checking this out. Thank you, Vinegar Syndrome. So like Home Alone with blood and gore. Yes. It's fantastic. Uh, Dial Code Santa Claus. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. We're going to be doing that uh, alongside Die Hard next week. And then the episode after that is the first episode of every year. And uh, it is the best genre movies of 2021, believe yeah, it or not. Top 10. <laughs> uh, there were genre movies that came out this year. And some of them were pretty good. And I know most of the patrons, the bonus listeners, they hear our bonus transmissions all year where we do deep dives on all the new genre movies that we like and some that we don't like. <laughs> um, but uh, the the big the big free episode for everyone at the beginning of uh, the year, we, we, we like to uh, to let ev- give everyone a little bit of catch up homework to do yeah. uh, for all the stuff that they uh, they might have missed. So, yeah. You're going to hear us count down each of us, our top 10 genre movies that came out in 2021. And there were some good ones. Mm-hmm, so, definitely. uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. But yeah, that being said, that wraps it up for everything, uh, this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.